lights of the round table. We dance whenever we're able. We do routine to call a scene to put work in back cable. We dine well here in Camelot. We eat ham and jam and spam Stand. Uh, climate change, Darren. <laughs> I uh, I think the climate's changing. <laughs> ah, come on. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grime America Show. Uh, we're gonna be jumping into it with uh, previous guests Connor Habib, Red Pill Junkie, and Alex DeCaris a little bit later. But first, as always, Graham Braingasm Dunlop. <laughs> <laughs> officially known as uh asmr asmr yeah autonomic sensory something or other something that's when you get off on music i don't know no there's a whole bunch of different reasons for it but uh i just was reading a blog here on asmr quickly it says uh what started is is the what started as a desire to create a fire and add some crinkle sounds to it turned into a small sci-fi series to celebrate crinkle heaven crinkle heaven 10 my longest running series of sound recording videos for asmr and relaxation so there's quite a thing with people uh, doing this on youtube and all that that's um i'm trying to find the autonomous sensory meridian response but I, I don't know if, if like, but I get, I get it from music and exercising and stuff like that. I think that's what it is. Drum solos. Drum solos. <laughs> You'll find out about that in a future episode. <laughs> so is that like the... I think so, yeah. I think that does it for people, too. You know what I think it is? It's the opposite of nail scratching on a blackboard. Or, like, my girlfriend will bite her fork, and she doesn't understand why it drives me nuts, but it goes right through me It's that sound of teeth scratching oh, on a yeah. fork right on the, on the plate so that yeah or like yeah nails yeah, on a chalkboard this is the exact opposite of it i think yeah i get the same thing hmm. same thing man so how's things this is a fun episode it's a great episode yeah we got red pill junkie who's a regular here a blogger a 14 a true 14 guy and he's been on a lot of podcasts lately he's kind of making it was on ours last week yeah Fucking Roswell. And then Alex Sakaris, the host of Skeptico, and he's got his new book out, When Why Science is Wrong About Almost Everything. I think I always mess up that title no, a little bit. I think you got it right that like time. That. Yeah, friend of the show. And Connor. Then, yeah. Who we went, Matt and Lethbridge. 
Yeah. Took us right out of our comfort zone. That's right. I know. I was going to mention that in the show, actually, coming up, but uh, we didn't really talk about it. I was going to say, yeah, you're pretty good at getting people out of their comfort zone. Absolutely. (laughs) Never forget that day. Yeah, that was fun. Um, hmm, Well, maybe we should just do this. Before I interrupt you. Yeah, so. thanks, buddy. Um, this is the profound UFO quote of the week. It's the only the, the only thing I'm ready for right now, so I'm glad you picked that. Bought you some time again, you see, and you think I'm out to get you. I know, I do. That's my worldview right now. Darren's out to get me. So we had a number of reports from re- reputable individuals, well-educated, serious-minded folks, scientists, and flyers who surely saw something. Air Force... Air Force, uh, as Air Force Chief of Staff in his 1965 autobiography, Mission with LeMay, stated that although the bulk of UFO reports could be explained as conventional or natural phenomena, some could not. Many of the mysterious might be explained away as weather balloons, stars, reflected lights, all sorts of odds and ends. I don't mean to say that in the unclosed and unexplained or unexplainable instances, those were actually flying objects. All I can say is that no natural phenomena could be found to account for them. Repeat again, there were some cases we could not explain, never could. That was from General Curtis LeMay, statement from 1965 autobiography Mission with LeMay, and that's with McKinley Cantor, New York Doubleday, 1965. New York Double Day? What's that mean? Publishers, probably. Oh, yeah. Okay. Anyways, I kind of chopped that up a little bit, but the gist of it is yeah. they never could explain You're them all. paraphrasing? Paraphrased a quote? Or yeah. you just bumbled it? I just bumbled it a bit. That's okay. It happens. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it happens. Right on, buddy. Anything else? <clears throat> yeah, I want to thank some more people for uh, for their feedback. Um, I'm not going to read it because it's it feels weird. From triple triple A zero three from the USA. Thanks for your your awesome review. Uh, that really helps out the show. Yeah. Reviews on iTunes, especially, right? That's the main platform, I guess. Yeah, if you're on an iPhone or anything like that, if you just type in grimerica.ca/slash/itunes, it take you right to the page. Really, eh? So, grammarica.ca slash iTunes, and it goes right to the iTunes page? Yeah, right to right there. It'll open it up in your podcast app where you can review it. Right. Okay, cool. And if you have an Android, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> someone could mail us in the instructions of what to do. On how to do a review on an Android? Yeah. Okay. Since yeah, no one that's a bit different. Yeah. America has an Android. Yeah, but uh, the reviews really help, and there's other ways to help out the show, too, because as you know, it's just a strictly uh, value-for-value model here. We don't have any ads, no sponsors, no uh, no nothing. It's just all free content and lots of it. Yeah, we, Mark, do, we did want to mention that, actually, because... Yeah, we do have expenses, though, so, I mean, we're not trying to, to make a buck out of it, really. We just want to cover our expenses, so we appreciate the people that have donated, and there's lots of ways to contribute. Yeah, we're always trying to figure out new ways to improve our sound. Or improve our everything, really. Yeah. Yeah, and it's been good so far, you know. Yeah, we got uh, we got more and more subscribers. It's been a while since we got a new one, but um, we've definitely got a, we're building a pretty loyal following there, so that's nice. Um, 
I think there's been two or three since the last time I had, or four even since the last time I had to give out an email address. So yeah, so you're still giving addresses. away a Gramerica at Gramerica dot com email address. Yeah, Sweet. or CA. It's up to them. Right. That's for and like I think a I minimum was, five dollars a month subscription. Yeah, and I think I said I was going to do a hundred or something like that. Well, you said fifty originally, but we're not there yet either. So. No. <laughs> <laughs> there's still some headroom at 50 i yeah. think brad i think we're almost at about 30 so we're getting there yeah and we might get some more t-shirts so that people can donate and and uh, we'll ship them out a t-shirt it's really not a money-making thing just kind of a sort of a native advertising thing or not native but a native an advertising ad, you know, thing. An, ad, an advertising uh thing marketing thing i guess just have people wearing shirts oh yeah it's yeah. not native advertising. no i know that's why i messed okay. up and uh, the best form of advertising we have, of course, is a tele-friend advertising. Yeah. And if you can't tell your friends, maybe you can just tell someone on Facebook or throw the Gramerica link up in a comment someplace or whatever, wherever you uh, converse with like-minded folk, throw us a bone, pat somebody on the back. Yeah, it's just me and you here, really. We don't have a marketing department or anything like that, so we kind of rely on people to spread the good word. Spread the gospel. The hegemony. The hegemony. So what else do we want to say about that? You can sign your friends up to newsletters too. That's kind of a fun thing to do. You just yeah. go on the grammarica.ca. <laughs> slash news. type in that email address and sign somebody up to the newsletter. Actually, I think, yeah, I think it's right on the homepage now too. Yeah, you can just, you could sit there for fucking 20 minutes and just pump in email address, <laughs> put in your whole address book. I hope there's not something illegal, illegal about that. that. <laughs> well, Justin read the newsletter, <laughs> so they'll knock on his door. <laughs> Justin's breaking some sort of ad spam list. Yeah, it's well, all no. good fun. I'm sure you could delete your name off the off the newsletter pretty easy, right? Not like Oprah's you Book Club where you can't get off it. You can unsubscribe. How'd you end up signed up for Oprah's Book Club? Never mind. <laughs> what book was it? It was probably Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth or something like that. Like back in probably eight years ago, seven years ago. I can't get off the newsletter. Seriously, they won't let you off. Sometimes it's hard, but there's always a way. You think so? Yeah. I'll try again. By law, I think there'll be an unsubscribe, but then in order to make the unsubscribe, there was a little box at the bottom you had to check to, and then you had to count to 10 backwards. Harp Harpo's above the law. Oprah? Yeah, well, probably. If anyone's above the law, Oprah's above the law for <laughs> sure. Um, What else? Uh, voicemail? Nobody does that. We should just take it off. We've only ever got one voicemail, unless it's not notifying me. It might not be. Maybe we should check it. If, you, if you've left a voicemail. You don't just randomly check it? Maybe there's a bunch of them on there. No, it's supposed to email me. Is it? I don't think there's no place to check. It just emails me, I think. Maybe I could check it. If you've left a voicemail. I'm sure I've tried a couple of times just to play around with you. Nah, I don't think you have. Yeah. Maybe you're just dreaming what? stuff up. You dreamed it, maybe lucidly new dream sign came out check that oh, out oh that's what i want to mention yeah it's it's hilarious there's some more grammaric easter eggs in there for you guys so, to hunt out yeah so we're talking about napoleon's uh how do you pronounce his last name de hume maybe i have no idea i think he's french canadian he's do him do him he's uh he's got meg ryan in a quebec nordique's jersey <laughs> maybe they might come back one day yeah meg she looks good in his comic that's good yeah. He's been doing the episode art lately too. I'd imagine 
he doesn't know this episode's coming out yet. It's already Tuesday. I should actually shoot him an email, see if he's, because he's taken on the episode art. Of course, if anyone else wants to send in some episode art, uh, feel free. You can basically poke around the backstage. That's not really a good, um, doesn't really give you a good idea who's coming out next, but it kind of gives you an idea of everyone who's going to come out. What do you mean? Until, is it in a chronological order? Oh, I see what you mean. Like I guess who, if you who's going to be released? Basically, the latest date on the back or the earliest date on the backstage that hasn't been released yet is probably the soonest episode. Yeah, we try and do first in, first out, but sometimes it doesn't work for the most part. So yeah, big thanks to Napoleon for the art and uh, the content, and of course, if anyone else wants to take their hand at uh, submitting some artwork, go ahead and email it over. Yeah, and send in your synchronicities and your lucid dreams and UFO sightings, whatever you want us to. We haven't got any of those in a while, eh? Uh, yeah, I'm saving a couple for the next intro. Might want to throw one out. Give me something. No, it's too it's too big. The one I, the one I got, I don't have a lot of them handy. So that's what she said. <laughs> uh huh. So I have no jingles I can play. Uh, no jingles you can play. so yeah. should we just jump into it then oh did you talk about listening li- listening live in the chat what do you mean speaking of our of our um comic blogger napoleon he listened live for the first time tonight didn't you read his uh yeah he it, says yeah. i'm listening live for the first time it's every bit as magical as i imagined it to be so anyways you can do that by going to backstage and that gives uh a loose schedule of when we're going live. Sometimes we have to change it. Like our schedule's all over the place, so we don't expect a lot of people to be listening live, but there is a chat room kind of there if uh, if you want to join us. So go to Backstage to find that out. America.ca slash Backstage. Yeah, that's all through Mixler. And I think that's what it, this episode, this interview ran fairly long, and it's fairly late. And the next intro, we got a bunch of fun stuff coming up. And the next intro is going to be a long one. We've got to get, uh, we got a little remote viewing exercise for you guys coming out. That's going to be fun. That's on the next episode. Um, as well as another surprise, I think. But I can't remember it. That's what I'm calling it a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, guys, I think that's it. Enjoy the round table. It was a fun one. And we'll uh, pick you up in the outro. Okay, in Grand America tonight, we're excited to welcome back past guests, Connor Habib and Alex Dakaris. 
and Grand American regular RPJ. And of course, Graham, how's it going, buddy? This should be a fun night. Hey, yeah, I'm doing good. I'm a little nervous, actually, but I'm actually excited, too, because I don't have to do a lot of talking. I can just let these guys You're go. You're always nervous. <laughs> I'm not always nervous. No, but we've got, um, yeah, past guests here before. I think Red Pill Junkie just got disconnected, so we'll see if we can get him back on. Um, and we've got Alex Sakaris here, who's host of the Skeptical Podcast. He's been on a couple times, and he's got his new book out, Why Science is Wrong, about almost everything. I think I got the title title right. And we've got Connor Habib here, too. He's... Uh, studied evolution for a few years and he's been a gay porn star amongst a bunch of other things and we just heard alex call him very smart so he's an articulate guy and we can't wait to talk about all kinds of stuff with him and then uh, red pill junkie who we will be bouncing in and out of here from mexico so welcome to the show guys how you doing thank, thank you thank you graham darren good to be with you guys yeah this is really exciting uh i don't even know where to start i mean you guys have uh, you guys kind of know each other. We've been listening to each other's shows. I know Alex, you wanted to get into a little bit about um, uh, the global warming thing, maybe. But uh, I kind of just leave it all open right now to t start talking about stuff. Yeah, um, I'll, let me just start. Um, you know, I I have been a big skeptical fan for a long time, and just to give. The people who are listening, a little background. Um, Alex and I talked a couple years ago. Um, I was trying to start my own podcast, which um, actually ends up being a lot of work um, in case anybody <laughs> is like, oh, I'll just have conversations. But it ends up being a lot of work. So I recorded like six episodes, one of which was with Alex, and then I decided not to do it. But uh, I eventually put the transcript of <clears throat> most of that conversation up on my blog. And um, – I'm just – something that's always really impressed me about uh, you, Alex, is like the transformation that you allow yourself to display um, over the years on your show. And so I'm just really excited to talk with you. And every time I listen to a Skeptico episode, I'm like always yelling at it. <laughs> <laughs> whoever it is, like, I'm just like, well, but what about this? And so I'm glad I get to say some of those, what about this is, uh, today. So, yeah, that's great. That's I want to, I want to just jump in there too and say something, Alex, I mentioned this to you in email while we were setting this up, but I'm telling you 273 with Dr. Henry Bauer on your podcast and 271 with Dr. Larry Malerba were two, they become two of my all time favorite podcasts. Like those two guys and the way kind of you guys articulated, uh, you know, materialism and uh, talking about medicine and, you know, what's going wrong with science. Was, those were two of my all-time favorites. Wow. Super nice. Very nice of both you guys to say that. And uh, I really have enjoyed, to, you know, get this fucking mutual admiration society. <laughs> <laughs> People are going to be turning, tuning this thing off, you know, a bunch of guys sitting around slapping each other on the back. But um, The bromance. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I do think... You know, one of the things I thought we could do on this roundtable is kind of uh, tie up some loose ends from all our shows. Because, sure. as I told you guys, you know, I was blown away by the interview you guys did with Connor. I thought it was great. And uh, there was a lot of great points in there. And we're chatting a little bit about it before. But I literally have all these scribbles down of, you know, things that kind of like you, Connor. I was like, hey, you know, let's talk about I want to talk about that. And, you know, some of them are like, hey, I really want to kind of nail that to the ground. And the other ones are like, yeah, you know, that's a really cool idea, both. And I, I think, you know, I, I want to get in uh, to a, po a point about Darren. 
Because I sometimes Uh-oh. think, yeah, <laughs> I sometimes think Darren is like, like the forgotten guru in this thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> no, no, there's him like, you know, he's like Obi-Wan Kenobi. He doesn't say much, but every once in a while he has these things that are really deep. And uh, so I'm going to kind of, I'm going to pull in Darren every once in a while here. Cause I think he's got, he has some good points in that thing with Connor. I think that, uh, that I want to bring up as well. So yeah, yeah. Let's, let's start it up. Uh-oh. That's a great idea. Sometimes I don't remember. I just black out. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That means that you're just going with the flow. <laughs> Did we get our PJ back? So Red, how about you? Do you have any asses to kick before we get into this? Or asses to kiss, I meant? <laughs> well, none of you guys. <laughs> Come on. Not well, even I mean, not even Connor? Come on. <laughs> I know I think that everybody knows by now that I'm uh Huge fan of all the people in the round table, except Darren, of course. <laughs> but, no, I mean, I, I've been listening to Skeptical for, God, how many years by now? At least since I, since I, since I joined the Daily Grail, so 2007. I started to, to, to listen to Skeptical, and slowly but surely, it became one of my favorite Podcast in all the lists of podcasts that I listen to, and I listen to quite a lot, believe you me. And uh, I also think that Connor, Connor, you should really try to to go ahead, you know, make the effort to, to have a podcast of your own because I really believe that you have a lot of things to to contribute to a lot of discussions of uh, very varied topics, you know, not not just uh, things about. Sexu- sexuality or, or, or things about uh, sexuality, sexology, but also things, the, the things that we discussed the, the last time we had you on Great America, you know, the, the problems with uh, Darwinism and not only that, the problems with material science and the things that we could try to do or, or maybe we who are in the trenches and with our podcasts and our blogs, the things that we might try to attempt in order to facilitate that uh, the paradigm shift that Alex is so skeptical about. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I would say, you know, something that's something that's a little bit of a crossover is something that people have a lot of trouble talking about publicly is sex. And it's really funny when I listen to Skeptico and I hear. Um, your guests, Alex, like really struggle to restrain any opinion that would go outside of polite society. I mean, I think it's like sex and God are these two things or sex and whatever you want to call it are these two things that we're not allowed to talk about in polite society. Maybe money is another one, which is just a sort of God, I guess. And so you, I, I, I love that moment where people just refuse <laughs> to assert any opinion that might just be a guess. It's always referential to some sort of data or some sort of thing that's already been established. But the idea of having a conversation where you freely express yourself is just off the table. That's something I encounter all the time too in a lot of the work that I do is like just the sort of embarrassment of or the fear, um, the anxiety of being able to uh, 
just let yourself into a topic and let yourself sort of wander around in it, you know? So I think red pill, like what you're saying is like, you know, that, that the trenches is like just free conversation, you know, which is something that we do privately, but we don't really allow ourselves to do publicly. And so I think it's really important. Yeah. I, I think we should have that. I think we should really strive to kind of have that because and, and I think this is a good forum to do it because uh, Darren and Graham have really, I think, created a, a really nice vibe along those lines. And, you know, I, I listen to the feedback that you guys get, and I'm obviously not the only one who's saying that. But I, I, I do think you guys have this ability to kind of just create more of that kind of conversation that Connor's talking about. And, you know, I'm I'm not... I'm not totally down on the sex thing because I think it gets complicated in some other ways in the same way that spirituality gets kind of, you know, complicated in terms of, you know, some people are going, well, it has to be, you know, it, it, there are a lot of parallels, you know, like you got these Zen people that are like super rigid, you know, you got to sit there and you got to be Zen, you know, and then you got these other people that are real you know, tantric and they're going like, you know, Oh no, you know, it's just about experiencing everything. But I, I, I don't know that there's, I don't have a firm handle on, you know, what's really true or what is, what is even not true, you know? Cause I mean, I think that's what I always kind of go for the skeptical thing. I'm more and more into it. It's just, Hey, I'm not sure what the hell is true, but what is not true. But, you know, in that light, you know, I love what you said about conversation, you know, and about really feeling the ability to kind of loosen up and free yourself up and uh, and just kind of let things fly. And, you know, that, that that sounds real inviting. I was just really happy when you guys set this up. And uh, and and I think let, let's let's see where this goes. Yeah, I'm, <clears throat> I'm glad you mentioned that and both of you and I'm glad that it's coming across because that was really one of the reasons why we wanted to do this is and especially for me. I just wanted to talk about this, this kind of stuff, be able to speculate, be open and, and not have a, you know, any judgment or, you know, predisposition or no agenda and just just let people share their experience and let researchers share their research and and be able to speculate and, and talk about stuff without having to be always, uh, you know, 100% backed up on everything. And then there's Darren. It's just fun. <laughs> Look, I'm always nice. I'm always nice. And if you can't talk about something, like, when, when I hear people not, not able to discuss something, the thing that always vexes me about it is that, like, okay, great, we all have limits, and we all have boundaries and comfortability and all that and it is our responsibility to investigate and push on our own boundaries but if there's a real boundary that you're not willing to go past disclose why <laughs> don't pretend that it's about information or don't pretend that it's about like what I, like say you know if you're if you're talking to alex this is my appeal to i don't know who am i appealing to jerry coin or something i don't know but it's like if you if you if you're afraid to say something to alex that steps outside of the dogma say like you know, I'd like to talk to you about that, but I'm really actually afraid my colleagues are going to shame me. Like <laughs> that would tell us something about what the conversation is and why you feel unfree. Like I don't want to hear like uh, I don't want to hear bullshit excuses. I want at least expose the real reason because then we learn something and we take something from it. And also, like 
your colleagues might hear you as well, but we're afraid to be honest in that way, you know? And so it, it hides, it hides even the reason why we we're not talking. So uh. I think, I think there's a lot to what you're saying. If I can just chime in there um, in that, you know, I think all of us who do this kind of stuff, you know, like to interact with people in this way that we do. You know, we're podcasting, we're blogging, we're doing all this stuff with social media like Red does. You know, I think the way I've always uh, thought about it, and I've said this a couple times and, and it's kind of hit people, is I always felt like uh, kind of weird that everyone else didn't see how crazy this bullshit was you know i mean you guys started out by talking i forget who, who mentioned it but it was like you know oh my god don't talk about religion or politics you know it's just really not smart to do that like what the fuck i mean i, I don't get that you know i never understood that or you know I just had this uh, conversation, long-time friend of mine, guys, we've been friends for like 25 years or something, and, you know, he's a great fan of Skeptico, but he doesn't get it. He, you know, he listens because he's like my friend, but he doesn't get it. He always sends his comments. They just send me over the wall, you know, and he's he's Catholic, you know, and he's not even that good of a Catholic. You know, he may be Catholic because his wife's Catholic. But so every once in a while, when he really gets under my skin, you know, I say, well, you know, I did, you may not agree with it, but I think it stacks up better than the baby Jesus hypothesis, you know? <laughs> oh, and that just, you know, he, he really takes offense of that in the way that, you know, I was raised to, to feel like that's just really offensive and you should never say that. And I'm in such a different place now where I go, how is that any less fucking offensive than saying that that you know consciousness surviving bodily death or some guy who's talking about his kundalini experience or some guy who's talking about his awakening experience and coming totally disregarding that and disrespecting it which he does you know and and making fun of it and mocking it you know it's like oh my gosh you know i mean but they're on a different they're on a different level cuz we have all these rules laid down and then what we've evolved into i think and this is what you're alluding to connor is everyone just plays it safe man oh then don't talk about don't talk about kind of anything or talk real you know carefully and sometimes there's a reason for that you know i just interviewed a guest and i won't mention his name just a couple of weeks ago but it, he was up front at the beginning. He was like, because I said, hey, man, you know, isn't this total bullshit what you're telling me? <laughs> and, and he was a pro-sci guy, pro-parapsychology, pro, pro uh, that. He goes, yeah, he goes, but I can't say that or I'll lose my job. He goes, no, he's <laughs> even more direct. He goes, you know, if I didn't have a, a wife and a son you know, maybe I could go out and say those kind of things, but I have to couch him, and I'm paraphrasing now, and kind of the way that I would say it, I have to couch these things kind of carefully, because they just don't fly in my profession, and, you know, there's a lot of that at play, and I think it, it then just kind of carries over, and people just internalize that, and their whole life becomes, you know, well, better not say that, you know, and... <laughs> but at least he said that to you, like, I'm, I'm impressed that he at least... I think that that's the component. Like, I don't want to push anybody into revealing something or or having a conversation about them that's 
about something that's like really pain, but like, t- tell me why. Like, if you have some self awareness about it, at least I can respect that. I might be irritated and frustrated, but okay, you've placed your boundary and you've told me, like, it's because I'll lose my job. Well, great. Like, I don't want you to lose your job. I'm not going to push you on it. That's not your fault. That's the culture's fault. To some extent, it's your fault. But by you saying, I'm going to lose my job, I learned something about culture. So thank you for that piece, at least, you know? And we, and you learn about that, like the gross, the just gross power structure that you always bump up against with your guests, like that nobody seems to want to acknowledge that so much of what's happening in our worldview is based on who's in power, the institutions and people that are in power. And, you know, it's like we talk about that, you know, when we're doing some sort of political theory, economic theory, any of that kind of stuff. But when it comes to science for some reason, which is, you know, the driving force of a lot of our worldviews, um, it's off the table. And I don't know why. <laughs> wow, that's very well said. Yeah, I, <clears throat> it made me think about when you mentioned uh, religion and spiritual or religion and, and politics. Those were the two original polarized topics, and it seems like now with the internet, and you know how that's polarizing everybody to, to you know, to follow the evidence that re- reinforces their worldview. Now it's becoming polarized with you know climate change or science and and spirituality or all these other things that are, you know, it's it's almost forcing forcing people to one side or the other in an unconscious way, and and I don't know if that's a it's a good thing or a bad thing. Seems hey, can, can, I ask a, can I ask a polling question here? And I want to start with Darren because I, I heard you guys, <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to talk. I wanted to throw this climate change thing on the table, but I wanted to approach it in a, in a broader kind of more conspiratorial, conspiratorial nice. uh, avenue because I, th- I think it's cool. But before we get that, you know, where do you – I want to put you guys to the test here. Where do you stand on it? I mean, where do you really stand on <laughs> – on climate change, Darren. I uh, I think the climate's changing. <laughs> Come on, see that's what I'm talking. But about. I don't think saying, it's. Man. I don't think it's. Well, I think it's uh, slippery slope. It is. Yeah. I think. Is... I think that maybe. I think that if you said maybe if if you said five percent was because of man, I would think that that was extremely optimistic. And that so let's clarify. You're talking about it if, over ninety five percent is natural. Is natural change? Yeah, if not a hundred. But I'll give maybe possibly because I mean I don't. I'm not saying polluting and shit is good or you know it'd be great to find a better energy. But I really think it's that's not what's causing the climate to change. I think it's fucking just part of the cycle, man. <laughs> what's everybody else think? <laughs> I'll, I'll go. I'll go next here. Um, I, I think uh, along the same lines as Darren on this one. I think that humans obviously have some sort of impact, but whether that's significant or not, I, I don't think it's. I think there's too much, too much money and too much dogma around that that answer. And I think that it's uh, it is part of a natural change. I think it's been changing a lot. I think aren't we in like the hottest time, anyways? Uh, in like thousands and thousands of years. I mean, it's been, we've had all these cold spells. I mean, if you really look at the natural, natural change through the ice core samples and stuff like that, you see that this really was kind of volatile in the past. So, I mean, I think the climate is changing and I think that it's, 
humans play a part, but I don't think it's a significant part. The problem with it is, as soon as we start talking about this, you get thrown in a camp, right? It's either you're I'm in a an oil denier. camp or you're a denier. Now they're saying it's not even that you're denying climate change, you're denying climate. They use one word now. You know, a climate denier. <laughs> what the fuck is a climate denier? I'm not denying climate. You know, maybe if I'm open-minded, I'm saying that climate change is real and it's happening, but we don't know the cause and we can't predict it. They can't even fucking predict tomorrow's weather really accurately or next week. So I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a kind of a frustrating topic. Yeah. I, you know, I'll, and not only do they say you're denying climate, they say you're denying science, right? So it's it's be, it's it's beyond that, you know. Like the implication, if you're an anti-vaxer or if you're, you know, if you're a climate climate denier or whatever, the idea, or if you question evolution, the idea is that you're you don't believe in science, right? Yeah. I mm. and and of course you could very well believe in science and not believe in that explanation. I mean, my answer is at once totally boring and also maybe a little interesting. I I really don't know at all. The truth is, I don't investigate it. I don't read anything about it. I kind of don't care. And then <laughs> it sounds so horrible, but it's like the level my, – my focus in climate change is really, again – I mentioned this before. This isn't my focus in everything, but my focus in climate change is the people in power and who and who's directing either the story or the money. I don't have an, any idea about the science at all. I don't think that my actions are going to significantly change it. I can say that. I've evaluated my own actions in it, and it seems like they're not going to do anything. Like when we talk about the drought in California that's happening right now, um, you know, it's like 77% of the water in California, I think, is 77% is used by agribusiness. And, like, we're getting all these messages that are like, take shorter showers. Oh, oh. Like, that's not going to yeah, do anything. Totally. So I just, don't, I just don't care. It's like, what do you want me to do about climate change when I can't even know anything about it? It's kind of like when people say they're making informed medical decisions. It's like, well, we don't, we don't know all the unpublished trials about a pill – which pharmaceutical companies have no uh, no moral or legal obligation to publish, um, especially if they're unfavorable. We don't know anything about the, the shit that we're getting. So we make the decisions that are informed enough to make us feel less anxious So, or, or, or deal with our anxiety in one way or the other. Some people deal with their anxiety by – uh, you know, for with climate change by, you know, joining the Sierra Club or something or becoming vegan or whatever. To me, I don't really have any anxiety about it because I don't care because I don't think my actions are going to affect it. So I don't get involved. When, if I come across a really compelling narrative about climate change, like I'll jump in and I'll have some vested stake. But right now, like, the fuck am I going to do about it? So, so it, I, I, I hope it, on one hand, it's kind of a boring answer because it's, almost evasive of what you're asking but on the other hand it's like that's where i actually stand and you know my own personal stake in it is so low yeah well, it's really similar to my answer it, it read what what about uh what, what's the two questions I mean how do you feel about it personally and what's the vibe like in mexico city i mean because it's there's such a and i was down there with my wife a, a year or two ago just visiting it was an amazing place but the pollution is really you know it's kind of in your face <laughs> no really <laughs> okay so mm, my opinion I guess it has always been more or less that 
like uh, and climate change is real. And I and I don't even go with the PC term climate change. I, I call it global global warming. I feel that the world is getting warmer. And maybe uh, human activity is only one small part of it, but maybe because of the delicate balance of this um, natural system that we are really not uh, there. Oh, did we lose Red? I think we lost Red. That happens from time to time. <laughs> we lose him down the rabbit hole. We lose him. Down. Are you gone, Red? Yeah, there's a hang up button there. Okay, so, oh, yeah, hold on. We'll try to get it back. So yeah, Skype's going to work on. Did you? No, Skype's going to work on getting him back. Alex, you still there? Yeah, I'm still so here. So let's, let's, what about you then while we're well, waiting for yeah, Red to come know, back? I, Connor, I got to say, I thought, your, I thought your answer was amazing. And, and I was going to share just a, a little hokey story that just happened to me. Actually, actually happened to me a couple months ago, but then Hello? it kind of, hey, there he is. No, please finish. Red. Okay. Okay, buddy. Finish up, Red. Okay. My idea. Uh, uh, climate change is real. In fact, I call it what it is, global warming. Um, I feel that maybe human activity plays... Maybe it plays a small part of it, but maybe uh, it's not about the size of it, but whether we are... Uh, making an important imbalance in so in a very delicate uh, uh, system of equilibrium. So I I use a, a like a metaphor. Uh, sometimes I think of the the metaphor of uh, an elevator, an elevator that is very crowded. You know, it's really going almost to its full capacity, and the rope is almost about to snap. You know. And then comes a small fly, and whoop, it, 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 it's, it, it sits briefly uh, on top of the elevator, and bam, the rope snaps. Maybe that small fly is human activity uh, putting up <coughs> carbon dioxide on the atmosphere, but uh, it doesn't mean we shouldn't try to, to, to keep the, the fly out way of the elevator you know <laughs> now as for the, the second part of alex's question the, the view in mexico and i think in all, in all of latin america is people are pretty much convinced uh, or, or have been led to be convinced that uh, uh, human activity worsening uh, the climate no there, there really is not uh, much dissent on the matter, you know, well, maybe it's of the way we Latin Americans think, you say, oh yeah, you know, climate is shit and, and it's all the gringos fault, <laughs> you know, so, so maybe that, yeah, and uh, now we see people in, in America say, no, 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 it's not our fault, it's a, it's a, it's a system. Uh -huh. mm. oh. <laughs> this could happen. I was really, I was really enjoying that part of it. I would totally concede that it's the gringo's fault. That's <laughs> what this gets to. I mean, anybody's fault, then I'll take that. <laughs> but no, I was going to say, what, what is it? Uh, what do they call that? The 
<clears throat> the idea that they're going to combine, you know, Canada, the United States and Mexico and uh, America or it's American Co or something. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. You guys, yeah that, I mean, that's what we got going here, right? And we'll be we American Junior. Yeah, that's right. No, no, right now we got it. Yeah. Yeah, you guys. No, are... no, we, we sell it to you as you're going to be this equal partner. And then we'll, you know. No, isn't that Gitmo East, the Britain? Yeah, that's Britain. Yeah. Okay. Oh, we got the North America covered right now, though, in the yeah. Skype, except for Mexico keeps dropping off. Trilateral Grand American That's experience. what would happen if we really were all connected. <laughs> See, I figure the natural state, and I say this with absolutely no knowledge or evidence, but I think the natural state of things is just warm and melted, no ice. What do you mean except the natural state? Except we get fucking state? smashed the with world? rocks once in a while. <clears throat> really? blocks out the sun long enough that everything freezes up or like i wonder if like a fucking rock coming in could rip away the atmosphere and just like uh-huh. well that's one of the problems when you really get into that you know and, and i forget what the guests you guys had on but you know if you want to start talking about natural disaster calamity kind of stuff that can wipe us out i mean you, you can you can get really depressed really quick uh, the, the global warming thing just pales kind of in comparison yeah, yeah one of definitely. that's one of my favorite natural disasters is the creation of oxygen when <laughs> when the when the uh when the other proliferation of oxygen when the bacterium um were sort of starving all across the planet before there were any uh uh, I think before there were any nucleated life forms, although I might be wrong about this, but when the bacteria were sort of starving, they uh, broke the hydrogen away from the oxygen and water. And so it released all this oxygen, which killed everything on the planet because everything was oxygen was a deadly poison to everything. So this sort of proliferation of oxygen, which allows everybody here to live and all the plants and stuff to live was at first like the deadliest Holocaust <laughs> of life on the planet. So we can get really like depressed, but then we can also see, well, everything like this results in some sort of drastic change for life on the planet, you know? Um, and it can lead to, you know, interesting consequences. Of course, that's not exciting for us if we want to, you know, keep our iPhones and stuff, but something to think about. Carbon's <laughs> good for the plants. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. I mean, that's one of the claims that, that you hear when you really dig into the science. But you know where I was coming at this thing from, and I wanted to throw it on the table because, you know, we're all pretty well versed in the consciousness stuff. And, you know, Graham, you kind of even said initially, you know, I'm kind of against this consciousness culture revolution thing, which I'm not. I'm just I'm a little bit skeptical of the kind of change that we all see when we get into this thing too much. And I think issues like climate change, because they're so, you know, uh, present in everyone's mind, they're so cultured, laden and just, you know, battling it out every day that that they I think they bring things into focus because they kind of pull us out of our little world back into the real world. And and that's why I like Connor's points. But here's my little thing. I'm down at the grocery store, little market, you know, and I'm checking out. And, you know, before the guy even asks, I go, yeah, I'll have plastic, you know. <laughs> and the guy goes, uh, guy goes, no, before I even say that, he says, did you bring any bags? 
you know, and I'm down here in Southern California, and this is a real thing to do, you know, it's, it's like people bring, and I don't know where you guys, but they bring their bags in, you know, and they recycle, reuse, all that stuff, which I don't have any problem with, but I never do that. You know, most people don't do it, you know. So, you know, we get into this thing, and he goes, hey, no, there's no more plastic bags. <laughs> Solana Beach has passed a law that we're not allowed to give you plastic bags. And then he kind of lays this vibe on me that, like, you didn't bring your bag, man. I mean, why aren't you on board with the rest of us? So, you know, I'm like, okay, Why do you, you know, hate pay. Mother Earth, Alex? Exactly. So he, he's like, okay, you know, I'll put it in this plastic bag and it's 10 cents. I go, okay, fine, you know, go with it. So I'm... Later, I'm talking to a friend of mine who lives in this tiny little town that's right next to my town, Solana Beach, you know, and I'm kind of teasing. I'm going, you know, those assholes at the, you know, Solana Beach city government, you know, they're going to change the world, you know, by I can, I said, you know, I can go a mile up the road to the next little grocery store and I can get all the plastic bags I want. I mean, how is it going to change anything here? And I'm kind of going on and on and I'm really, you know part outraged and part just kind of proud of myself that I've kind of see through all this bullshit. And then much later, um, I'm talking with my friend and it strikes me. I I've kind of totally missed the point here. It's not about the plastic bags or the recycling or anything like that. It's about the fucking 10 cents. <laughs> See, when they rent, because the grocery store, they can't, they can no longer give me a paper bag. They're not allowed to. And, and I, as I went in there a couple more times, the guy was like really, you know, anal about, no, I got to ring that up. Well, he rings that up. It goes right through <laughs> into the city and drops a little dime into their, you know, into their coin box there. Plastic bag tax. Like, ex exactly. And I saw it now. I said, oh, God, this is not terrible. This is genius. This stupid little city here has figured out a way to tax me. And no one's really talking about the tax. They're talking about, are you, do you bring your bags in or do you not bring your bags in? And, you know, do you get the frowny face when you, you know, bought that, that paper bag? No, man, it's just about that tax. They're not stupid enough to think that this tiny little town is going to make any difference. They just found a way to, to give us a tax. I think that's the issue. That's not only the issue with global warming, which it is, but I think it's kind of the issue with a lot of these topics we talk about, which is, you know, when you really get your frame of reference right, you really see what the game really is it makes it a lot more clear. Now, the way that relates to me in global warming, and I sent you this link, uh, Graham, I don't know if you had a chance to, yeah, to yeah, look yeah. at it, but there's, there's two aspects of it. You know, whenever you talk to the people who are really into the climate change, the, the first thing I always say is like, what about fucking China and India? You know, the only thing I ever hear you is, is how Sweden is going to be carbon neutral and all the rest of it. How are you going to get China in India to go along with this scheme you got, you know, because there's no way. And be anti-nuclear the whole time. <laughs> right. Well, the nuclear thing is, is the other part of it, which is, you know, uh, like the, the article that I sent Graham was like, somebody said really in, in a much more eloquent way, but he said, you know, how would we ever expect these misfits 
that are the UN or any kind of worldwide governmental agency, how would we ever expect them to administer any kind of program that we'd have in place, you know? I mean, it's a disaster. We can't get medicine and water to people who are dying, you know? Tomorrow we can't we can't do it. And when we tried, like, you know, the nuclear thing, uh, you, you know, we killed a million children and women in Iraq because we sanctioned, sanctioned them because we were worried that they had these weapons of mass destruction that they didn't. But we said, hey, until you prove it to us, you know, we're going to take away all your medicine like that. And we killed a million people, right? So can you imagine that in a, in a carbon thing? You know, like, hey, you know, you didn't get your carbon limits in. You know, we're really going to do this. Mm. But then the thing is, so, so what's the game? You know, what's the 10%, the 10 cent tax that goes to the city? And again, I'm so surprised that a lot of people haven't dug into this. But it's the, it's the what these guys really were trying to do was develop a worldwide currency. I mean, a fucking worldwide currency that would be this carbon trading. Because if you did get everyone on board or even just a lot of people on board with the idea that, hey, you know, this carbon thing is really bad, really, really bad. It's the most pressing thing. We got to really tackle this, you know, then, well, everybody has to sign on board and we'll, how will we regulate it? Well, we'll trade these carbon credits, you know, and you can use money or you can use this, but that becomes the worldwide currency. That's what these guys were playing for. And from that, then you can start. To, so once you understand the game, I think, then you can start looking at the science. And the science, to me, I, I don't know a lot about the science, but I know enough to say, you know, when a guy comes along and says, hey, here are the best models, and it shows that the world is getting a lot hotter, and then a few years later, when that model breaks, he says, well, you know, that might have broken, but I'm still thinking it's so, even though that's the data that I was selling you before, and now that data says there hasn't been any warming for 15 years. Well, I mean, that's just, that's just bullshit. But to me, the, the real thing is, how do you get past some of these issues? To it was It was, to me... A whole different deal in my little thing with Solana Beach. I was I was cool with it. Once I understood that they were just trying to tax me, all my kind of anger went away and I kind of chuckled and go, hey, good for them. You know, they figured out a way to tax all these people and no one getting too pissed off about it. And I can't feel the same way about uh, uh, global warming because what those guys are trying to do is a lot worse. But at least, and this is kind of like what Connor was saying, you know, at least it's a more genuine kind of conversation, but I don't think we can have those. We're always shielded from those. And I think that's the topic that keeps coming up in your show and my show. And even in, you know, some of Connor's writing and all the rest of it, it's like, Hey, you go into UFOs. It's the same thing, right? You go into consciousness, psychedelics, you go into all these topics that we care about, you know, it's the same kind of thing where you can't really put your finger on what's behind this. Why can't the obvious answer just come through, you know, in terms of what you're doing? You know, psychedelics. I mean, isn't it obvious? Don't I control my consciousness? Can't I be able to do what I want if I don't hurt anyone else? How does anyone ever have a role in that? You guys know what I'm saying? Well, I think I think a lot of it, I think a lot of what you're talking about would require um 
a tolerance of uncomfortability that people are not really used to. Um, I mean, I think, you know, because as you were talking, I was thinking, okay, so to confront that, the tax thing or the carbon thing or whatever, we we have to be willing to make ourselves outsiders to a, a, a mainstream view, which would require some sort of uncomfortability, dealing with the uncomfortability or um, – you know, like even global warming, it's like calling it and knowing glo it as global climate change in a way that's prescribed to us uh, gives us a real sense of 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 being comfortable when we start doing things like, you know, not using plastic bags or recycling or whatever. But how can we stop ourselves from sort of fleeing from the feeling of being uncomfortable, uncertain, and all that? And that's something that, again, like comes up again and again on Skeptico, but also just in sort of the work I do and the people I talk to and the presentations I give and stuff, I really find that um, – the intolerability and phobia of being uncomfortable, of being frustrated, or of being even bored, these things are really, really difficult for us to tolerate. And so I think, I think that's somewhere where I would start to look, is the sort of culture of appeasement. Um, and I can go in a million places with this, but I, so I'll, I'll just sort of leave it there, that I think that once we learn how to be uncomfortable with expressing maybe not a certain viewpoint, maybe not like, oh, well that, you know, like we're trying to create a world currency and I know that, but rather like, hey, have you guys thought about that there's a world currency, you know, or just even sitting there and thinking about it by yourself instead of rejecting that out of hand um, requires some uncomfortability. I, I'm thinking about this in, in reference um, this week I had a little bit of a scandal um, <laughs> go on because Ooh. there's this group of writers that I'm a part of called Pen America, and they go out and they protect they they basically publicize writers who have been uh, imprisoned for their views or uh, you know th basically thrown in jail or tortured or killed for their views, and they raise awareness about it. So, it's a huge group of really prestigious writers, which for some reason they asked me to be a member of. And um, so anyway, there was a Penn Gala last night and they gave what is called, was called the, I might get it wrong, but the Penn uh, Freedom of Expression Courage Award <laughs> to this magazine in France called Charlie Hebdo. Mm. Um, <laughs> so uh, it, for, for those who don't know, Charlie Hebdo is, you know, does this satire? It's a satire magazine, but it's a satire magazine of the sort of most base. Like, I mean, if you watch Family Guy, like, imagine that, but like, just way more tasteless. Uh, and I mean, like, you know, it's like in the magazine, it's like Muhammad with his ass in the air, like waiting to get fucked, or like, like pictures of uh, of black politicians as monkeys, this sort of thing. And now they claim, like, hey, we're actually just satirizing this to help people to criticize power and all that. But you know, anyway. Without getting into all the complexities of whether that's true or not, a bunch of members of Penn, myself included, signed a letter that said simply, I dissociate myself from this award. Not don't have the award. Not you should not, you know, recognize these people. Oh, I, I'm, I'm missing a key part, which is that <laughs> Charlie Hebdo became sort of famous in the U.S. news because uh, – 
a, a bunch of radical fundamentalist Muslim assholes went in and shot uh, seven people, the staff there, um, because they were offended by the cartoons. So it became this big free speech thing. So a bunch of a bunch of members of PAD, myself included, signed this letter that said, do we think they should have been killed? No. Do we think that they should have the right to publish these cartoons? Yes. Do we want to be part of an award of courage for these people? No. We dissociate ourselves from it. That doesn't mean don't do it. That doesn't mean they don't have a right to publish. That doesn't mean anybody should have died, any of that kind of stuff. We just don't, as members, want to be part of this award ceremony. So for a week, <laughs> and the gal was last night, so we'll see what the fallout is, if there's any, but for a week, a lot of us lived in total uncomfortability. I mean, really high-profile people, Salman Rushdie, um, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg from The Atlantic. These kinds of people are calling us pussies. Literally, Salman Rushdie called us pussies. Um, uh, calling us uh, pro-terrorist, calling us all these things because we just signed this letter saying, we don't want to be a part of this. This is complex. We all have our sort of different reasons, but we're, we're not a part of it. Um, and so there's a lot of like the world just sort of coming down on us. And so I was thinking about this, Alex, partially because it's so fresh in my mind, but partially because you're talking about what would it take to address that kind of stuff. And I was thinking, well, this is sort of the latest dumb gutsy slash stupid thing I've done um, publicly um, that caused me a ton of uncomfortability. But actually, I noticed in this weird week, responding to the people that were saying these inflammatory things to me, writing my blog response about why I wrote this thing, why I signed this thing, um, talking to people, I actually noticed that if I looked at it the right way, I could see that I was enjoying my uncomfortability, <laughs> that I was really suffering, irritated, frustrated, and annoyed, and that I was enjoying all those feelings. I was enjoying the engagement with that. And Alex, I know you know what I'm talking about because you have very uncomfortable conversations with people sometimes. I mean, these are not like simple conversations. And yet at the end, you almost always, maybe with a few exceptions, manage to say at the end, like, thanks for coming on our show. What are you doing next? Like, <laughs> what's going on? Everybody check his book out, you know, whatever. You enter into this space of total uncomfortability because it has purpose. It gives you, uh, it enriches your life. And I think that that's something that we're dealing with here is a phobia of uncomfortability. Um, so that's where I would point to after that long-winded expression. That's where I'd point to. I, I'd mm. like to chime in. Uh, uh, for um, The thing about Charlie Hebdo is, that made me uncomfortable is like there was some, uh, definitely some kind of double standard that these guys were, were uh, working with. For example, uh, I read that in 2009, they they actually fired one of their staff because of uh, a joke he made with regards with um, uh, the, the then president of uh, of France, uh, Sarkozy, and, and, and his um, I think his uh, son. That the fact that the son had married a a, a, a woman of Jewish uh, descent, and, and someone made a, 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 some kind of joke like saying, oh, so now the guy is set for life or something like that. And some people thought that the joke was uh, anti-Semite. And we should remind ourselves that in Europe, there are very stringent laws 
against anti-Semitism, you know, for reasons that are, I don't know, I think everybody will understand. So the guys asked the, uh, this uh, staff member, you know, to retract himself or to apologize. And the guy, in a very Charlie Hebdo-esque kind of way, you know, he replied, I'd rather cut my balls off <laughs> than to ask for forgiveness. So they fired him, you know, so... There is this kind of um, double standard. So, okay, let's, it, it's okay to offend Muslims, but mm, it's not okay to offend the Jews. But I wanted to say something more about this, the right to offend versus the right to, to, to feel offended. I, 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 I kind of feel like the, the Charlie Hebdo thing, it somehow relates also with the things that we deal uh, most with in the Fortean community, you know, with skeptics and, and even the atheists, you know, how they love to offend the people who think, uh, they think who have uh, stupid or, or, or anti-scientific ideas, right? You know, mockery is the favorite tool of the modern atheists and, and, and the skeptics. And whether they have the right or not to offend people for what they believe, um, we should ask ourselves, does it actually work? And I think the answer is no, it doesn't work. You know, the, the more you mock someone for what they believe, whether it, that is Mohammed or um, creationism or UFOs, the more you mock them, the more you are going to cause those people to reject whatever it is you are offering as a counter-argument, you know? People will only uh, close their eyes, close their ears, you know, and, and, and keep up believing what they are believing. So I think that uh, that's what I think maybe people like the Charlie Hebdo and the skeptics and the atheists should try to follow more the don't be a dick policy that Phil played, <laughs> who is also a skeptic, try to offer, you know, as a way to, well, maybe we stuff... Is toned down with the mockery, maybe people will realize on their own that they are actually, you know, their, their beliefs are, you know, wrong. And I actually remember, I am remembering something you, Alex, said in that uh, recent, somewhat recent interview with this guy, uh, Camela, what's his name? Philip Camela. Yeah, Philip Camela. I really resonate. It resonated with what you said about how you view what you do in a very Gnostic way because it's all about personal transformation and it's all about maybe leading the, the person who is listening to a skeptical to have that personal realization on their own but you are not you wouldn't wouldn't be able to to force them you know to accept what you're saying about I don't know consciousness UFOs global warming what Whatever. You only you you can only go so far as to lead those people people and maybe implant the seed of doubt in their minds, and maybe that seed will germinate with some people, and maybe it won't with others. But well, I don't know. I, I guess that's the things that I was thinking about when Connor started to talk about Charlie Hebdo and trying to get back with other things that we were discussing previously. Mm -hmm. Red, while, while we still got you connected, <clears throat> you were at an event last <laughs> night 
And yeah. uh, I mean, I think it's probably appropriate because Red, Red's been called on to a couple other podcasts to talk about this uh, this uh, event that we kind of talked him into going to. <laughs> and if your ass is woken up from sitting down for five hours, do you want to no, talk about it a bit? Or? <laughs> no, my ass still <laughs> still recuperating. Uh, I don't know. What, what do you want me to say? You know, uh, these guys, the organizers, Jaime Maussan, who is like the, the ringmaster of ufology by now, they promoted this event with so much hype, so much hyperbole. And I have the pamphlet that they gave to the attendees, you know. Jaime Maussan presents Big Witness, the change of history, you know, May 5th. And well... Here we are on May the 6th, and, you know, history hasn't been changed, you know, and it wouldn't be changed by the slide or whether it is the slide of uh, the image of, uh, of a dead alien, the, the image of a dead Bigfoot or the image of a dead Jesus body, you know. I mean, people in the 21st century will demand a, a, a bit more in order to be moved to change their 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 opinion about UFOs and especially after so much so many things uh, have been said about such a controversial uh, subject as the Roswell case you know i mean we, will this be instead of the smoking gun the final nail in the coffin of Roswell probably not you know probably we'll still be fighting about it discussing about it whether whatever the hell it crashed in the New Mexico desert in 1947. But one thing is for certain, um, I feel that some of the people who were involved last night, mm, they might regret their decision of attending. <laughs> do, do you mean the people on the periphery? Like, the, was there presentations wrapped around that? I mean, people like Richard Dolan. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I meant. Who, yeah, one who wrapped... The presentation, and even though his position was, you know, he wasn't really going to endorse the slides, he was going to talk more about uh, things, uh, his thoughts about disclosure, you know, how to bring about disclosure, what will it mean to live in a post-disclosure society and all that. Um, uh, also, let me point out that last night I didn't attend alone to this event, I asked one of my cousins, uh, who is also very interested in UFOs, to come with me for two reasons. One, because I didn't want to go alone, and second, because I wanted him to give me his opinion, because I really wanted to know the opinion of someone uh, who is, I know for certain, uh, he, he's a smart person, who is interested in the subject, who will get to hear whatever evidence Mausan and the others will provide from an untainted uh, point of view. He will be as immersed in all the controversy and all the inside drama, as it were, that has been transpired on the web regarding the slides. And, well, at the end of the, the, the event, when we were you know, heading to, to the parking lot, heading back home, you know, I asked him, well, so what, what did you think of it? You know, were you convinced by what they presented? And he said, well, you know, it, it, he, he said he, it was very, very interesting what, what they said and what they showed. 
and he especially was very interested in what Richard Dolan said. And he also wished that uh, Rich's words, that hoping that the slides will have some kind of ripple effect in trying to crumble down the wall of secrecy that people like Rich believe are uh, uh, impeding our the full recognition of the UFO phenomenon in our society, that the slides will have that, that kind of effect and gradually will start to erode that, that say, the wall of secrecy and, you know, bring about Let, the post-disclosure society he's hoping to... to I just want to, I want to say, so, I want to say something about this real quickly. So, so, and, and it is sort of to tie some of these threads together. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. So today, for example, there was uh, this news story. I think it was today. I don't know if you guys heard about this, where this assistant to the DA in Southern California, maybe Alex, you've heard about this too, because we're both in Southern California, was arrested for running a 3,000-year-old occult police force. Um, <laughs> she, was, she was arrested, right? So it's on public record. She said there's this – there is definitely, because she's charged with it, this police force that's been running. And she claims it's been around for 3,000 years. It's Masonic. It has all these occult beliefs intertwined with like who they're arresting, all that kind of stuff. Now, you would think if this is true, you would think that this would be big news. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, presumably the law thinks it's true enough to arrest this person, right? Um, and so when you're talking about a slide, I'm not familiar with the thing that you want to. Um, mm. But we, look, I mean, I think that the thing I notice, and this again goes back to the uncomfortability thing I was talking about, and really skeptico, you know, is people will believe what they want to believe, right? And and, and that includes me. That includes us. The the difference and, and the thing we need to strive for, there, there are two ways sort of out of that. One is like a trauma event. Like we're talking about if someone sees a UFO or encounters mm -hmm. a 3,000-year-old occult police force, <laughs> maybe if they do – or maybe if they do like ayahuasca or something, they can, they can sort of traumatize themselves out of – the sort of system of desires that they're locked into, that's not available for most of us. It's not even available to most people who do hallucinogenic drugs because most people do it and they're like, wow, that was great. Now I'm going to uh, watch TV. <laughs> um, so so what, what I think we need to work on is expanding the possibilities for what people could want expanding the idea of, well, you, you, you want this, this is your life as it exists, but did you also know that you could want this version of things or this <laughs> or this version? And it's really important to not get settled in our own version too much because then we become Alex Jones, um, where we really want a version that is so paranoid because it's so consistent and sort of spreads over everything um, that he can't want anything else. That's what some people do when they sort of evade. And so what, what I would like to do is provide people with options for what they could want. And there's this quote um, that I live by. I actually sent Alex a, a quote from this person before the show, but this is a different quote from the psychoanalyst Adam Phillips. And I, I live by this quote. It's so profound to me. And he says um, – it's in a book called Darwin's Worms. And he, he, said, he writes, 
instead of talking about the natural and the unnatural or even nature and culture, we can talk about the parts of nature we prefer and why we prefer them. So when we – I'll read that again because I think yeah, it's yeah. to take mm-hmm. – Instead of talking about the natural and the unnatural or even nature and culture, we can talk about the parts of nature we prefer and why we prefer them. In other words, our system of viewing the world will be a real intense focus on our preferences rather than facts. Because what we have right now, I mean, there's, there, there's the extreme fact, and that's what I'm talking about with this sort of trauma event. But what we have right now is the idea that somehow facts will lead us into the truth. And that's something that over the years of Skeptico, I've heard you, Alex, just bang your head against again and again. Like, like, don't they see the data? It's the data. It's the data. You know, and that's really important. But people aren't going to see the data. I mean, you, you've established that pretty firmly. Like, people will just see what they want. So, and, and one of the reasons why is that we, we treat data just like we treat any other object. It's like, oh, well, I accumulated, I get it, I own it, that's mine, now I have this fact, now I have this fact, now I have this fact. But what we need to do is instead somehow get into the gesture of thinking, the way we think, the way we want things, and pay attention to that. And then that starts opening things up a lot more. So, you know, when we go to a UFO conference, it's not just this same shallow gesture from one side or the other, like, oh, I didn't believe in UFOs. I went to the UFO conference. Go, those guys are so stupid. Or I believe in UFOs. I went to the UFO conference. This is the information that's going to convince everyone. Nothing is different about those two people. It's just that one likes it and one doesn't. So what I'm really interested in is helping people understand that there are lots of ways to want and lots of different things they can want. Yeah, that it's almost a metaphysical thing, like the law of attraction. It reminds me of if you're thinking positive. No, Darren, Darren's already huffing at me here. No, but you're but you're you're talking about focusing on the positive stuff that you desire in nature or whatever. And the, and the more you do that, your perception will change, right? And you're, you know, it's like you're 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 manifesting the world that you want to live in more than looking at the negative aspect of you know the unnatural or whatever. I that's what I got out of it. Well, I, I mean that, but I, I, I think that that's true to an extent. But what I mean is sort of in a more psychological way. Like, we don't really know what we want. <laughs> I mean, I don't think we really know what we want. I think if, if, I, if I sort of did the secret and secreted a Camaro and suddenly I got a Camaro, is that really like a paradigm shift? That's just sort of me wanting more of the same. What I, what I think I'm saying is um, – um, if we pay attention to if we if if i look instead at why i want a camaro then that will tell me something mm. and then i can start to look at why do i want these other things and can i create another option of wanting another way of wanting mm. um can i want for instance to not have a camaro you know i don't have one can i teach myself to want not having one um, can I want, this is the uncomfortability thing before, can I want to engage in conflict with these writers who are much more famous than me because I desire that rather than trying to sort of hide under the carpet and give a thumbs up to Charlie Hebdo when I don't believe in it? Can I want to engage in that conflict? Can I want to be uncomfortable? That's sort of what I'm talking about. Wow. You know, the, other, the other place, uh, I wonder where that takes you know, you guys, uh, Graham and Darren, because I was thinking about that as Connor was saying that, which I think are some really excellent points there, really excellent points. 
how does that relate to you guys in terms of your show? Um, <laughs> you know, because what are you, it's this interesting interplay of, you know, where are you trying to take your audience, you know, which sounds like total bullshit, but at some point you do have to kind of make these decisions. I mean, I heard you the other day talking about, you know, booking guests on I mean, who do you book? How do you approach it? You know, where, where do you, where do you draw the lines in terms of what the stuff you're doing for yourself versus the stuff you're doing for your audience, you know, and then doesn't that get a little bit kind of head trippy, you know, in terms of that whole thing? Well, what do you guys think? It used to be all guests for ourselves for a while for the first, you know, year. And then it, I, it I don't evolves. know. Now it's probably, yeah, now it's probably, it's kind of probably a 50, not even a 50, 50. It's probably like, 25% guests that we're actively pursuing versus, you know, 30% guest suggestions and 40% people who are contacting us. Look, like, how can you tell Darren does math all day long at work? Eh? Everything's like a percentage, right? It's like putting it into a pie. Well, it's uh, 25, 35, and 40. So I, I think it evolves totally. I mean, I... Personally, we're, I'm interested in so many different topics and so many different things. Really, it's it's kind of like trying to go with the flow and feel like what's resonating with us right now. What do we want to talk about? What do we feel comfortable talking about? <laughs> not right now, like what do I not feel comfortable talking about? So I'm probably doing the opposite of Connor and, and avoiding the uncomfortability. But but no, that's, we're open to that too to a certain extent. But But it is an evolving thing with... Uh, the difference between what we are super interested in right now, what guests are suggesting that we think we're going to be interested in, and um, and and trying to look at some people who want to be on the show. But having said that, we're also looking for, I think, new new people, new ideas, and having a platform for people that won't necessarily get a chance to talk to an audience, right? Like we've had some people on that yeah, haven't been exactly. on a lot of and podcasts. And have it be a safe place. And have it be a safe place to like, to talk about their shit and, uh, and maybe reach some people that'll be interested in it. So it's kind of finding that, I think that rare, unique uh, thing right now too. And then helping people like, they, it's interesting getting people like Randall Carlson on who were somewhat unknown and they've been on a few podcasts and they're, they're exploding now and they've got tons of good ideas and, just to see that that all happen and be a part of it is pretty amazing. How do you deal with the Charlie Hebno kind of aspect of it, which, you know, you guys aren't, aren't, aren't there, but I mean, there's some of that in all of this, you know, in terms of, you know, I mean, what I get out of uh, Connor's story, which is pretty amazing, is, you know, people get caught up in their own bullshit, you know, I mean, they really kind of do. And don't you kind of sometimes worry that you're going to, that that's going to kind of happen or that you're going to lose that, that edge that, that you have or what you've kind of created, um, and what you're doing. I, and, and I tie it back to this thing of, you know, like the one thing I did cringe a little bit about where you were saying with uh, what you were saying, Connor is, you know, gosh, I, 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 I when we talk about what people should do, you know, or where we should take people, I'm really uncomfortable with that. And, and red kind of mentioned that, that too, you know, I'm, 
I'm really uncomfortable with that because I don't know where I'm going, you know. And and mm-hmm. also I know what, where I'm – when I do kind of feel like I know where I'm going, it takes me in a very different direction, you know. It's away from being – it's towards being less egotistical. It's towards being less – trying to game the system or less trying to rev up, you know, the conflict and all that. So it's like, I don't know. I think there's always this kind of tension when you're dealing with trying to put out uh, this information to other people. There's this kind of tension of, that's the Charlie Hebno tension of, you know, hey, people are liking that and I like being edgy, but I, I also see it as, kind of problematic in a number of ways. Yeah, I, I have that fear that you're talking about. I think definitely I, there's fears like that in, in the show for sure. This is an interesting conversation because it, it's not very often we get to talk about it like this or even make me think about some of these things. But I think that one of our one of our guests and a guy that I really like his research, Grant Cameron, who's shifted from like nuts and bolts and documentation of UFO research to like the consciousness aspect of it. He... He, he was really saying, like, t- tomorrow my opinion might be totally different, and tomorrow I could be going in a different direction, but right now what I'm saying is kind of like my truth. And I, I feel like if I'm honest with where I'm at and where, the, like, you know, how I feel about things or whatever in that moment, then everything will be kind of okay. Like, as long as I'm not sort of faking an agenda or something. I don't know. It sounds kind of hokey, but um, I hope you guys kind of know what I'm getting at. You know, I told, uh, I, go ahead. Sorry. Okay. Uh, this reminds me of a quote that was written some time ago by Whitley Strieber, who is, as you may or may not know, one of the most controversial uh, figures in the UFO and alien abduction scene. You know, he wrote the best-selling book *Communion* in 1987, I think. And the the thing that he wrote is. Uh, be prepared to live your life with high levels of uncertainty. And I think that that is uh, something that has helped me retain my sanity in this wacky world of of fortune phenomena and UFOs and all that. I feel that there is a, a, a very strong link with the tolerance of uncomfortability that Connor was uh, was uh, mentioned and I'm bringing up to the conversation and tolerance of uncertainty you know you, you really have to to be comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty and uh, by uh, getting at the end of the day and say you know I'm I may go to my grave not knowing whether UFOs come from some other dimension or from some other planet or from the future, whatever. And it's okay, you know? (laughs) At the end of the day, I really don't care uh, the origin of UFOs or uh, the true nature of ghosts. Uh, I'm still fascinated by this all because, once again, getting back to to what Alex said in that uh, conversation with Camela, it's the the personal transformation what counts for me. So I think that if you, if Grimerica is able to retain that and skeptical and Connor with his word, this idea of the personal transformation and to say, well, you know, the journey is the destination, you know, there, there really is 
you really get the reward by 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 staying in the path, then things will turn out okay, even if we don't get the answers. Yeah, and I think I think a bridge between these comments is, you know, saying I'm uncertain, and and saying you know I'm just going to do what I do now because it feels right. So the way I would say that the, those two th- things together is it's okay to say I know, right? We don't always have to live in a space of uncertainty. But instead of saying I know, maybe we can start saying I want. Like this is what I want to believe right now. because And I know that I want to believe it because I do. And that does not mean it's true. That does not mean it's a fact. That just means that I want this right now. Hmm. And I may want something else later. I think that that's really important because I think, you know, it's like I I don't want to necessarily – I mean, there's something that bothers me about a skeptical worldview is like – or an agnostic worldview – um, as as an overall, of course, we all have pockets of skepticism, agnosticism, all but, that. But Connor, question. Connor, let me play skeptico here and interject. <laughs> I mean, Go ahead. I, I don't, I, I don't get that from you. I mean, what I hear is well formulated arguments, well thought out, you know, objections to other people's points of view. I mean, tell me a place where where huh. you, you're saying where where you would own up and say, oh, you know. I, I know this is kind of bullshitty, but I choose to kind of believe it anyway. I don't get that from you. Tell, tell me an example of, of what is something that's like that for you. Well, well, let me clarify, because I don't mean I feel like things are bullshitty. I mean that they might be, but it doesn't – again, it's just sort of like it doesn't matter. Like I notice that I believe in them anyway. Right. Like, um, like, let me, let me put it this way to try to answer your question. So there's, so if you listen to the Gramerica episode that I was on, I talked about Rudolf Steiner quite a bit. So he has this whole elaborate system with just the craziest shit, right? Like bees are related to the planet Venus and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and the center of Earth is made out of gold, all that. I have no idea if that's true or not, right? But what I do is I engage with the system of meditation and spiritual um, per- perception and engagement that he recommends, and I find that it changes me. I, f- I found that it's made me uh, do better in my life. Um, if not be better, then I do better. I'm, I'm kinder to other people. I, I do better in the world. So w- the way I explain that is like, okay, so either like it's total bullshit and um, or, or, it's, or it's true. If it's total bullshit, it's total bullshit made in such a way that it's made me a better person. So my value judgment is not on the – facticity of it, but it's based on the fact that I have engaged with it in a way that is productive to me. And I think that's something that's really damaging to us is that we keep trying to find facts. Now, it's not that I think facts are valueless or that we don't need them or that they don't do anything for us. I think that they do work. They're like little henchmen. But to give them 
to give facts the sort of primary duty of truth in our culture just seems to me to be wrong. And that does go back, Alex, I guess I will just bring it up, to the thing that I sent you where Adam Phillips is talking about psychoanalysis and he says, you know, when I read it, I don't have to know if it's true or not. I read, I read psychoanalysis as if it's poetry, so all I have to know is if it's haunting or moving, or if it sticks with me, or if it's provocative. So if we, if we you really want to get me worked up now, you really I want to get me worked up with the Freud's shit, huh? Okay, let's go. No, uh, let me jump in there because because a couple things. You know what I heard you say in that interview, which, and, and I totally agree with this, and I thought it was a great point that you made, was something different. What I heard you say is that you can accept that the way that all of us are, we have some wackiness about it, you know? So you can, uh, what I heard you say is, I can accept that Steiner might have been uh, right about a lot of stuff, and he might have been totally screwy about a bunch of stuff, too. And that's the way we kind of make up. And I think we're made up of. And I think you said the same thing about uh, Wilhelm Reich, you know. Hey, he's got some crazy stuff over here. But this other stuff seems pretty solid. And I'd kind of say, you know, can't we develop a system that is refined enough where we can see through, you know, someone was mentioning the, the bullshit of the skeptics who just you know, kind of want to uh, tear people down and, and this ad hominem attacks, you know, like really dirty politics. And I, I, I think uh, Red might have, was, was talking about that. You were Red. And one thing is, I, I, I kind of disagree. I mean, it's been proven. Dirty politics works. I mean, it works. You get down and dirty, you know, you just smear that guy and he smears you. And But at the end of the day, you know, if you're behind, it's a good strategy for winning elections. People have proven that over and over again. And I think it's the same thing with the skeptics. Maybe you, you know? win elections, but you don't win hearts. You know? Oh, of course. Of course. But, you know, when you have your, your, uh, your front men, your pit bull on a chain— you know, that's what I think people don't see about the skeptical movement is those guys are the front men for scientists. So the science establishments is able to sit back and just they look like, you know, their hands are clean. They're not getting out and saying all these outrageous things. But these other guys are promoting their status quo thing. But before we get off on that, I, I think what I want to tie it back to the Freud thing is that, you know, the, my problem with with Freud, and, and this is a kind of a broader thing of it ties all the way back to my good story about global warming as well, is that, you know, what I'm looking for for myself personally in my little skeptical journey is these uh, guideposts, these standards with which I can sort through these facts, you know, because when it comes to it, I do like the facts, you know, I like letting go of them and being on my spiritual side. But on my other side, I do like to kind of control my world by finding out what facts are true and not and developing a system by which I can understand the truth. And so I have these little rules like we all do. Facts play a big part of them. But you know what another rule is? If you're a liar, if you're proven to be a liar, and that's different from just being a little bit goofy and having some goofy ideas about, you know, one thing and that, that. but if you're a liar, then you're kind of out of my field of vision. I am then going to force myself to kind of disassociate myself in the same way you were talking about disassociating yourself because they went so strongly against your beliefs. Well, that's that's something for me. So Freud is a proven liar, 
first-degree liar. He's not only lying about these patients he's having, but he's creating these elaborate psychoanalytical write-ups of prominent people of his day, and it's all just fabricated. And I think I draw a line in the sand and say no. You know, so some English professor or some philosopher can go and disregard all that and say, oh, but maybe he dreamed this stuff up. Well, maybe he did. And maybe he had a really lot of great ideas and all the rest of that. But I kind of draw a pretty hard line in the sand and say, when you're a liar to that degree, no, I, I, I just I think we got to look the other way. Well, uh, I, I appreciate I'm so glad we're talking about this right now. <laughs> so I, I, I totally appreciate that, right? Obviously, you know, if someone lies to me like 10 times, I'm not going to be inclined to believe them. But we also find truth values that arise out of the conflict that a lie creates. If someone lies to me and I discover their lie, something happens there and I can reorient myself to the truth in a different way. Now, I don't, I'm not, you actually know more about Freud's scholarship than I do, right? My main interest with Freud is people that came after him and refined his ideas. But something that comes to me out of him and has been developed by other people, and I I do observe this as true, whether or not any of the other stuff is phony, right? I imagine him as someone who just sort of looked at everything he saw, you know, around him and tried his best to formulate a theory. So then he came up with like these bullshit ways to reinforce it as far as far as what you're saying and that person that you talked with about it on your show has said, I I it I don't know that stuff. Who was a Canadian, well. by the way? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so the troops are rallied. He wouldn't have so, lied then. <laughs> so, too polite. So I so I so what I notice is, you know, he sees all this and he gets an idea and he hopelessly tries to make us understand this idea because it, we're, we're so far away from ever understanding this idea that he fabricates all kinds of stuff. The idea, if there's only one that arises out of that fiasco, if it was a fiasco, that is valuable and that I appreciate and that seems true to me, is that we're not subjects of knowledge were subjects of desires. And the interesting thing to me about your re rejection of that is that that's something that seems to me to be proven again and again on your show, which is I see the knowledge. I don't care. That's not what I want. I'm refusing it for this or that reason. Instead, um, I'm going with the thing that I want, which is for materialism to be real, which is for my new age channeling, you know, being to be a real being and not just some nonsense that I hit myself on the head with one day, which is this, which is that. To me, that changes the whole field of what we're dealing with. And that that really is traceable to him, is to say, you know, instead of Aristotle, which is what we've been taking forever, which is like, I get one fact and it improves on the last fact, and then I get this fact and it improves on that one and that one and that one, which is basically capitalism of knowledge. I'm just going to keep accumulating goods until I have enough that I'm rich. He was saying, look, it's not about that. It's about 
these are the things that we want and that we go for. And what's more, when we get the thing that we want, it's frustrating to us because we continue because what we really want is to want it, not to have it. What does that mean? Yeah. And to me, that seems true. It's why rich people are unhappy. It's why when we get a bit of knowledge, like we seek to overturn it again, you know, and we have sort of a radical worldview um, where we're constantly overturning things for some people. Um, it's why when we eat a great meal, we want another great meal. It's why when we have great sex, we want to have more great sex. It's nothing is gratifying except the longing. And so that to me is the main revelation that he didn't have the language or the ability to communicate. People after him, who I find compelling, like Wilhelm Reich or Jacques Lacan or whoever, who I find way more compelling than Freud or even you. People saying this in a new way, just taking that one little part that his lives and saying, "Okay, but let's write on this." (laughs) So that, yeah. (laughs) Oh, you guys still there? Yeah, we're just having some connection issues here. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I think you will have to 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 repeat what you said. <laughs> no. uh, we caught most of it, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, we caught most of it right up until you were talking about Carl Jung, I think. But but no, I, I think we got the the general gist. Uh, Darren, you got you got I gotta call you in on this one. <laughs> gotta put you on the spot. And and also I'll frame up the question again. You know, do do the facts matter? Does our understanding of the truth matter, or? Do we have to kind of soften up some of that so that we really get to some of the deeper parts of ourselves that maybe are operating at a level below this kind of logical kind of thing that we like to wrap around ourselves to protect ourselves, which is undoubtedly true. I'm not at all denying that. Yes or no? <laughs> no. <laughs> and yes. And I don't know. That's a tough one. I'm not sure I 100% understand the question. Well, let's put it on a scale of 1 to 10 like you guys like to do. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm just kidding. No, I mean, I, I, I think that the question is, you know, how much of a hard ass do we have to be about facts? You know, I mean, is it about facts? Is it about logic? Or is it about, you know, kind of the more soft and fuzzy stuff of feelings, desires, emotions that we have to kind of work through? And, you know, sometimes if we have to kind of play with the facts and play with the logic as a way of discovering the deeper truths, then maybe we got to go that way. Well, I suppose it depends on the context. Like if someone's, say, giving me, taking out my appendix or something or or designing a computer, then I think the facts matter a lot more than personal experience, then I, I don't think the facts really matter. I mean, we have our fun little rating system and things like that. But I mean, what it really comes down to is what does the experience mean to you and what do you take from it? What do you learn from it? And how does it kind of, you know, we're constantly evolving 
how we take in reality every day, and that's just sort of another little line of code. Because I'm a big proponent of the digital universe. <laughs> but the center of the tree doesn't exist until you cut into it. <laughs> do you, do you, what do you think about that? You know, okay as a metaphor, but you think literally, I mean, you go Tom Campbell, my big toe route, and <laughs> say, you know, we're, we're living in a virtual reality? Yeah, I think it's definitely one of the better possibilities. It just seems, it seems to fit. I just emailed him last night. That's kind of weird. Maybe not completely. Maybe in some sort of way we can't even understand. But yeah, we've been trying to get in touch with Tom. I don't really know what that means. Like the, I mean, I know, I know what people say it means, but I'm confused about what it could mean to live in a world that was based on a metaphor that we came up with like 10 years ago. <laughs> totally, totally yeah. agree with you, Connor. I thought you had a great yeah. point in, in your guys' interview where you, where you, you this is a, really a brilliant point. That when you talked about virtual reality being kind of a, a meta-materialism, and it, <laughs> it, it slips in and people are like, Oh no, we're past that. We're transcending past that. It's like, man, you are totally in the soup. I mean, you're you're building on top of this material world, this materialism with another layer of materialism. I want to hear you guys talk to Tom Campbell. I don't, I don't buy it. I'm I'm with Connor uh, on that one. It's like, I mean, as soon as you reach the point of realizing how completely. Uh, in the dark we are about the larger picture of consciousness, how in, how small our little brain is to process this stuff, which keeps us from understanding, uh, you know, when you go into the UFO literature, the NDE literature, any of that stuff, what you hear over and over again is people saying, oh, I knew all this stuff. I had this great expanded consciousness, but darn, when they had to jam me back into this life form, you know, it was cranked down to the extent that I can't really tell you much anymore. Well, then, the, 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 I, why would we expect that we would understand the the nature of the the big picture down to some dorky level like tom campbell with his 160th of a second <laughs> virtual reality you know i mean are you serious i understand it as a metaphor the guy has, has got some brilliant ideas and stuff but you know when you take the metaphor too far and you stretch it again it just kind of breaks down and that gets me back to the point of what I'm looking for is a way, a system of kind of filtering through all this information so that I can then sort through it and say, you know, as the famous Terrence McKenna quote, you know, shit from Shinola, say, you know, that's just not probably true. And even if I don't know what is true, I can kind of take that and say, you know, that probably doesn't, that probably doesn't work. And that's where I am with the the virtual reality uh, stuff, I mean, and the singularity stuff. I mean, it's like, as a metaphor, great. As a way to kind of lead my life. Yeah, but I don't think it needs to be like a singularity thing or like a virtual reality thing. It's just sort of, I mean, you can almost look at it even from a spiritual spot. Like maybe, you know, it's not anything human made, but maybe even consciousness as a whole, like... You know, you hear people talk about reincarnation and past lives and maybe even lives in, in other realms that aren't Earth or 
things along those lines and, and people traveling in soul groups and things like that. I mean, what about the possibility that, you know, this is just a ride for us that we all kind of jumped in together and we don't, you sort of, while you're here, you have no memory of the outside. Sure. But how does that fit in with the, with the virtual reality stuff? You're, you're just saying that the digital model is kind of a model that you think is closer maybe to, to than anything else we're looking at. Maybe not anything, but it's definitely up there. I think, are you well, saying, I mean, I, I, I could see it. I could see a version of it as sort of being true. Um, if, if you, if you're saying that our bodies and the physical world is the virtual aspect, but not our consciousness. So like, you know, I have a friend, uh, Mira Bartok, who she, she wrote a, uh, bestselling memoir called the memory palace and Mira had, um, brain damage. And Alex, I'd be really interested to hear this on Skeptico, these kinds of stories. I don't know if anybody- Why don't you come on as a guest host? Okay. Her get her on and come on as a guest host. I'd love to have you do that one. Okay, we've got, awesome. Well, we'll see, we'll see about this one, but de I'd definitely love to do that. I think <laughs> she, she got in a car accident and it, it damaged her brain. And what she found was after as she was recuperating was not that she had less information or less stimulus but that she had more so she would go to a cafe and she could hear all the conversations at once and it was overwhelming she uh she had to be very isolated around sensory experiences very often because she encountered too many and this is an idea that um Henri Bergson had so people talk about this like that, you know, this is almost a cliche now among consciousness people. Well, the brain is a re the brain is like a receiver, not a not a mm -hmm. creator, right? But but also like, but it's a receiver that limits things, not that not that opens things up. Like entering into the reception actually limits things. So when she had brain damage, in other words, when the receiver was damaged, it. Uh, allowed for more experiences. This is something people don't talk about a lot, but when I talked to her, she said it's actually very common with brain damage. And so in that sense, I could see a virtual reality thing in the sense of, well, maybe all the bodies, the objects, all that kind of stuff is virtual. And then there's some sort of like constructed, I, I hate the word program. I hate the word machine. I hate all those words because they don't even mean anything to me. <laughs> but if it were, if it were that, um, and then the sort of program had a little bit of brokenness on it, and you start seeing words scrolling up across the screen. It's too much information overload. I mean, I could kind of get it in that way. I don't know if that's what you mean when you start talking about other lives and other dimensions and people incarnating here and going on the ride, but that's sort of what I'm hearing when you say Yeah, that. that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Yeah. I mean, kind of psychedelics take you down the same road, right? It kind of throws a glitch into the, uh -huh. the matrix. A glitch into the shit. What I wanted to interject is um, now this idea, virtual reality, Alex says, and, and Connor, that is still metamaterialism. But previously, we were talking about uh, we're wondering whether uh, facts, ma facts matter. And I was just thinking, you know, well, isn't it worrying about facts? Is still playing the materialist game in a way? You know, because because it's still uh, going through the uh, rules of uh, objectivism, right? Uh, objectivity, like the idea, assuming that there, in, there is an, a, an objective 
world existing outside of us, independent, independent of us. And I guess with uh, Darren's idea of virtual reality, maybe saying, well, you know, that is not just the case. But it gets complicated. I was just re uh, researching this quote I, I really like from Philip K. Dick. Uh, reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away, you know? And, well, maybe... Maybe even, even the idea of stop believing in it is impossible from <laughs> our point of view. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it, empiricism, like when you say objectivism, it's empiricism, like that are mm -hmm. empiricism based on our senses. And so, like, to pretend that that's the only thing that's happening is just absurd. We know that that's not true. We know that we have all these non sensory experiences. When I have a dream, like, and I see something in the dream, my eyes aren't open. And when I touch something in the dream, I'm not feeling it. I can imagine eating an orange right now and I can taste it. I mean, the idea that like we base a whole worldview on this extremely limited like purview of these senses is so stupid. And then take that to another level, just this objectivity thing. There's um, a really amazing book by Lorraine Datsun and Peter Gallison called Objectivity. And what it is, is it's a history of objectivity which is not, as it turns out, a stable concept, but one that's changed over time. What we think is objective and how we define objectivity <laughs> has changed mm. over time. So that itself is an evolving notion. So the idea that that's ahistorical and somehow completely true is uh, totally not true and totally not objective if you want to look at history. Um, and so I think that that's crazy too. I think when we talk about sorting through these things, like you said, Alex, like I want to know how to get the shit from the Shinola. Like – the thing that works for me, and maybe I'll change my mind sooner or later, but right now where I'm at is basically, and let's be, uh, you know, I need to stop qualifying this with like, it's so new agey. I need to actually just stop qualifying it and just say it. When I look at things, I try to think what allows me to feel the most compassion for others and allow for the most freedom for others and for myself. In other words, what is, what is the most aligned with love. And that helps me because, you know, there's this great quote from Emanuel Swedenborg, which I'm going to fuck up right now, but it's like, um, uh, wisdom without love is not wisdom. And, uh, I, I'm screwing that up a little bit, but the, the fact is if it's not leading us toward love, then it's bullshit. Now that doesn't mean that, uh, that, you know, I mean, sometimes it's like, like if I'm in an abusive relationship and someone's beating the shit out of me, the best way to be loving to that person is to get out of the relationship. It doesn't mean passivity. It doesn't mean not changing a situation or leaving the landscape that we're in or trying to fix things. It means that we move toward what is the most loving. And it's again, it's an ever-receding like horizon. But that's how I sort through the shit. It's like okay, like I really want to send Jerry Coyne like a letter tearing him apart for how fucking stupid he is. I'm doing it right now. I'm doing it under the guises of not doing it. Uh, I want to say how fucking stupid Jerry Coyne is. He is. But like, hmm. 
you know, but actually, like, it, what is that going to do for me? What is that going to do for him? How am I going to get there? You know, um, is is that the most loving way to engage with Jerry Coyne? Now, does that mean that I want to go on Jerry Coyne's website and be like, Jerry, thank you so much for what you've offered. You know, I don't <laughs> agree, but, you know, I just you just seem like a great guy. No, that's not it either. There's another way to deal with, with that and with the unfactual aspects of the things he says, the lies he tells, all that kind of stuff. So that's how I sort through. And maybe that'll change. Maybe one day I'll just sort through by like whatever gives me, you know, the most money or something like that. But right now it seems to work. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, that's some, that's some deep stuff. And I, I'm, I'm with you, you know, I mean, <laughs> I kind of feel like I have these kind of two sides that, that uh, I don't necessarily resolve themselves you know i have this one spiritual side that's opened up opened up a lot through skeptico and but but then that's been my kind of method too you know is that and i can kind of relate to where darren's coming from although i'm going to kind of disagree with them at the same time but you know i feel like for myself i've always been fact driven and big picture driven you know i need to understand the big picture and then I need to break it down into the facts so I can look at my beliefs and then I can go forward and then I can figure out how I feel, you know? And I remember telling this to my wife, <laughs> just looking at me like, are you, are you freaking crazy? You need to, you need to think it before you feel it. I mean, are you a complete imbecile? But I mean, I, I do. I feel like I need to think it before I can feel it. Otherwise I don't really trust those feelings but and and i i think uh i think a lot of guys are like that and i i think a lot of us are like that i think our culture kind of pushes us that way but like one of the things i guess i'd, I'd pick on the the virtual reality thing which we've, we've kind of hashed out and i do understand where you're coming from i do think it's a it is a pretty darn good model you know and i'm definitely a the techie computer guy former programmer you know artificial intelligence guys. I like all that stuff and I see all that stuff and and I see it enough to see that also where they're kind of kind of papering over a lot of the things that don't really fit, you know. But the, like one of the things that blows me away from a fact standpoint is you look at near death experience and People will talk to the end of the earth about this and about that and about this experience out of body, you know, verifying the data. But go back and ask these people, what is the most significant part of the experience? And they all come back and say the same thing. This is the data point. It's about love. It's about love mm -hmm. in not even a way that we're talking about it here. Because they say, you know, I can't really describe love because it's like beyond you know, anything that it just feels totally like, you know, perfect, perfect in every way, you know, but what do we do? We kind of say, okay, but tell me more about this other thing that I can measure, talk about or the cross-cultural thing or, you know, this and that. And I think that's, it gets back to maybe Connor's point about comfort. You know, we do want to fit it back into something we feel comfortable with. Mm. I love what you said, Connor, about uh, wanting to believe. So instead of having to, to come up and say, you know, I do believe in this or I don't believe in that, just f having the desire to believe in something, right? It, uh, I want to believe. 
Sorry, I had to go there. You would be the molder of the group. Yeah. But that does that make me scully? I don't like that. Yeah, but then John Keel will say belief is the enemy. Well, that's what he believes. <laughs> yeah, good point. Exactly. Touché. Touché. Yeah, but wanting to believe isn't the enemy. If belief is, the, the, you know, that's the thing, right? Right. Yes. No, wanting... but it's like the enemy's ugly cousin. <laughs> Long, wanting to believe is longing for a coherent system. We all do that. We can't escape that. You know, I can't remember if I. Uh, uh, yeah, I think I did talk about the sort of paranoid, you know, conspiratorial theory version of our consciousness on the last show. Did I talk about that? Jeez, or, I don't know. I don't think so. so. We talked about so much. We talked so long. But like, basically, it's like, you know, if you if you look at a sort of um, this is Jacques Lacan, psychoanal- French psychoanalyst version of of how the mind works. If you think of like a conspiracy junkie and you think of him sitting in a room and you know, you see all the, like you can just see it. It's like all the post-it notes and like the lines crossed, you know, yeah, basically what I'm sure at least one person who's listening to this podcast living room looks like where it's like threads of yarn, one post-it note to the next thumbnails in the map, like pictures and names written all over the place. Right. Like that's how, uh, he says our mind works, right? It's all these sort of disjointed things, and what we try to do is connect them. So in some sense, we're totally conspiratorial in everything we do. It's just that the paranoid schizophrenic is on the surface, but for the rest of us, it's beneath the surface because we create a series of emphases and connections that may not be there, but the the way we connect things is where we learn about our is where we learn about ourselves, and so it's like. I think, you know, it's really important. I mean, mean, here's a scientist, right? Like a scientist thinks that nature is a grand conspiracy theory. Like there's a secret meaning to everything and I'm going to decode the meaning and that's going to tell me what the universe is. That's the scientist, paranoid, schizophrenic to a T, right? We all have our own version of that. And so, you know, it's like, that's what I'm talking about with like what we want. Like, which version of paranoid schizophrenia do we want? I want, and, and, and if, if we can choose to want the one that we want, like if I can choose to want to believe instead of just believing, then I'm a step away from being paranoid schizophrenic. Then I'm a step, I mean, maybe not. Maybe I'm just entrapping myself in another web of lies. I don't know if I'm, while well, I'm saying this right now, but like it, 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 It'll give us a sort of new capacity um, when we're able to do that. So the one that I want is the one where I'm loving and kind and compassionate. That's the one I'm choosing. And so I fuck that up all the time. I'm a total asshole. I mean, I, you, like, just look at my Twitter feed. I'm not a nice person all the time. <laughs> like, I lose it. I'm a jerk. I insult people. Like, all that kind of stuff. But I'm trying. I'm trying to get there. I want to believe in that version of myself. So I'm going to keep working toward it. You know, one thing that uh, this uh, makes me think about is uh, this. I think it's a, a story that Alan Watts used to say that the disciple who goes to the Zen, mo- Zen monastery, you know, goes to the Zen uh, monk and he says, you know, I want to learn 
how to be enlightened, you know, how to, want to learn to, how to be a, a better person. And the Zen monks says, you know, who is asking this question, you know? To me, maybe the pro problem or the paradox is wanting to believe is like wanting to be enlightened. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is that the want, the want is the problem because the, the ego will always, always get in the way. You know, mm -hmm. so the, they, mm -hmm. they always say, you know, you can't want to be enlightened. You have to remove that want and then is when you, 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 you get the, the, the enlightenment. You know, to say, oh, I'm enlightened, bullshit. You're not enlightened because you're still thinking in, in, in the ego term. So I, I don't know. That, that, uh, that's the things that I'm thinking about right now. Yeah, but there's always that interplay. I mean, I'm totally with you, but there's always that interplay, you know, between what moves us and propels us forward is mm. that want and that desire. And it's like, you know, if you talk to the people in the spiritual awakening, transformational, you know, I always refer to my friend uh, Rick Archer at Batgap, who's interviewing all these people who are awakening, you know, these are the kind of topics they talk about all the time. And it's both, right? I mean, if you don't have the desire to do any practice, then you probably reduce your chances of kind of making that spiritual transformation. So what builds up the energy to kind of move forward along that path, you know, or to just just to be, as Connor was saying, you know, not to be an asshole. You know, it takes effort for most of us, you know. <laughs> we have to kind of yeah. consciously make those decisions. And But then you can also have that same overlay with this thing about the facts and you know i can't help but but think when you're talking about the the paranoid schizophrenic guy and the lines you know probably there's somebody listening now who has all those things hey i think you know the conspiracy people are really really interesting people and i'm one of them though that motivates me it interests me because i feel like i'm being I'm being shut out of information that can help me. And when I probe into that and I understand it in a new way, I feel like I'm moving forward. You know, I, I, I think I'm going to have um, Luke Rudkowski on my show. Do, have you guys ever heard of uh, We Are Change? Mm -hmm. The 9-11 truther kind uh, of people? Uh -huh. uh, not, not them specifically, I don't think. Uh, we Are Change is their... They're probably the most uh, out there uh, group that is socially organized around advocacy group for disclosure on 9-11, truth mm. about 9-11, all that stuff. But the guy blew me away because I, I, love, I love his work and I follow his work. But he just put out this video recently, and it was about all this energy work and healing work that he was doing with this group. And the way that he tied it back, I thought was really beautiful. And that's what I want to talk to him about. He said, you know, a lot of people that get into like 9-11 truth, they reach a point of hopelessness, you know, mm -hmm. because their world is shattered. And this is directly parallel with UFO people too, right? So mm -hmm. it, it, with everybody, you know, it's it, all, all the things that we like and we're interested in talking about. Your, your world is shattered. All your beliefs that you thought were true, you know, are stripped away from you. And then you have to rebuild your life. And sometimes when you rebuild your life and you can't put it all back together, you say, you know, shit, somebody else is really running the show. You know, the government really has known about UFOs. It sure seems like they've known about UFOs for a long time. That, that's, that's, 
that's discoverable, right? So we know that the government, you know, I love uh, 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 Grant Cameron, you know, you were talking about uh, the UFO investigator. Great guy. He's been on my show a couple, uh, couple times, and I really admire the thoroughness with which he researches these topics, and he was even voted you know, UFO researcher of the year uh, last year or the year before, you know, so really highly qualified guy. But mm -hmm. the, the point being that, you know, you, your, your world is shattered. You got to rebuild your world. The facts sure as hell help you in rebuilding that world. But there does become a certain hopelessness with it because you can't put the pieces back together you know the humpty dumpty pieces they don't all fit mm -hmm. back together but what i think it it opens up for you if we're really willing to to go there and this is something i think that um connor's touched on a couple times and red has touched on a couple times and it's my thing is that you know what maybe i can't change the world but i can personally transform myself mm -hmm. with this and and incorporate in this expanded worldview without rejecting it. So say, you know, gee, <laughs> that that couch fire probably didn't bring down Building 7. I don't believe <laughs> that the couch fire brought down Building 7. Something else did, and a lot of people are not telling me about it. Well, that's a reality. The UFO thing is a reality. Consciousness survives death is a reality. Reincarnation is a reality. And I can still build... Uh, I can't build a perfect world back to the way I had it with all those realities, but I can still build a world and I can still find a way to fit in that world. But I have to get to the, some of the more deeper stuff, some of the more spiritual stuff. That's my conclusion. I have to get beyond this material world to really make all that stuff fit. And that's where I guess maybe you're referring to. I get kind of Gnostic and I kind of sit back and go, now I have to reevaluate re what this world really is for, you know, what purpose it really serves, and maybe it doesn't serve the purpose that I thought it did before. Well, that's, that's, that's amazing. There's, there's this, I mean, you remind me of this, like, really profound Houston Smith religious scholar quote where he says, Another you know, all, all I have lots of quotes. This has got <laughs> 25 quotes so far. I know, I know. I'm really into them where he says, uh, you know, the, the the any idea of utopia is just, you know, it's a misdirection because the world was not made to be perfected. It's a testing ground for the human spirit. And, mm -hmm. you know, if we sort of step back, it's like, it's like, okay, so all the facts are empirical in nature. But if we think that consciousness is the sort of wellspring of, you know, of, of what's going on, which I agree with, um, you know, and, and I, I know that experientially, that all I have, you know, to contain the world in is consciousness um, and my experience of consciousness, then the material, empirical, fact-based stuff is not where the real action's at. So it's really important that instead I pay attention to my response and interaction and engagement with the factual stuff, with the material stuff, and that's where the action is. And so then I see what he means by a testing ground for the human spirit. It's not, like you said, the building falling or you know, even seeing a UFO, although that may be, you know, in the high weirdness, high strangeness version, that is a spiritual event, who knows. But it's, it's, 
it, it or or whether or not random genetic mutation meets natural selection and creates a new species it's not any of that stuff it's like what's happening in me as i respond to these things and how can i work to sort of think about it intentionally and feel with a sort of purity of feeling when it comes to it you know and then therefore take action in the material world that is based on those two sort of motions these wow. ideas, um, I, I wrote uh, somewhat recently something about this, you know, the, I called it the perfect world paradox. You know, uh, I was juggling with all these ideas, the ideas from Graham Hancock, who is mm. such a, a strong advocate of psychedelics, you know, all the teachings that he has received from uh, ingesting ayahuasca, but at the same time, he has a very Gnostic <laughs> You know, philosophy and Gnostics obviously believed that the world was some kind of a prison, you know, created by this false god, the Demiurge, you know, in order to take, to keep uh, souls enslaved and all that, you know. And I, I think that many people in the conspiratory paranormal world can kind of tend to that idea even if they don't realize. But at the same time... Um, Graham, like I said, is a, a, an advocate of psychedelics, and someone like Dennis McKenna, you know, will, will keep insisting that the first thing that the psychedelic teachers teach you when you ingest those uh, substances is that uh, this world is a paradise. You know, this world is uh, uh, really a blessing. You know, to be living in a world in, in which you are. Uh, Embody it, you know, with a body capable of all these wonderful uh, uh, sensations and all these wonderful feelings. So I was juggling with this idea, you know, which one is it? Is it, is it a prison or is it a, is it a paradise? And I was also reminded of this um, uh, spiritual teacher Ramdas, you know, when he was back in India uh, with his uh, mentor, you know, his guru. Neem Kuroli Baba. Yeah, Maharaji. You know, and, and the, the story goes that uh, Ramdas uh, learned about the terrible famine that it was uh, striking Bangladesh back in those days. And he, you know, being a naturally, you know, generous, compassionate individual, he was trying to see what he could do in order to go there and try to be uh, uh, of service to the people, you know, try to aid in whichever way he could and he was trying to see how he will be able to afford the trip you know maybe he will try to sell his van or something and he while he was making all these preparations you know and he told his guru maharaji's response was don't you see it ramdas it's all perfect <laughs> you know and the moment you you hear that you know it, it, the first reaction is, why, this guy is an asshole, you know? How, he, how could he possibly go and say that children starving to death is, is perfect, you know? What's up with this? But then uh, Ramdas was convinced that Maharaji was an enlightened being. You know, he was operating from a, a very uh, different uh, perspective or a state of consciousness than we normal individuals, you know, so, and I, I'm also reminded of that interview you, Alex, had with this uh, doctor who has devoted his research in studying people who claim to have the, 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 the enlightened state, right, how these people uh, 
many of them go through a stage in which and they start to lose uh, kind of the grasp, emotional ties with the people uh, sur- surrounding them, right? Their family right. and that. And it's not like they stop loving them. It's just that they are less concerned with their, um, with their fate, you know, what is going to happen with them if, if they die, if something is in a, if they <laughs> suffer some kind of accident. So the thing is that these people less become less enslaved with their emotions, both the negative and the positive. So I've been juggling with these ideas and the only logical conclusion I could reach is that, yeah, this world is a perfect world in the sense that it's the perfect world for the evolution of sentient beings. You know, the idea that this is, like Connor said, this, this world is the testing ground for sentient conscious beings for evolve, learn lessons and, and, and transcend, you know, maybe therein lies the, the perfection of, of these, uh, these states we live in. Yeah. Well, I mean, wow. And, and if you really want me to like, fuck this all up, let me also <laughs> say that, you know, someone who is really unconcerned with the emotions of others also is a psychopath. <laughs> So we have to think about that too. We have to think about like prison or prison or paradise, right? But we also have to think about this paradox of like, well, you know, a perfectly enlightened being, you know, who feels detachment from emotion is also the exact definition of someone who could cut your head off and feel nothing. Um, and who would just be like, fine, great, you know, love and light, you know, <laughs> like they just run you through with the sword and they're like, love and light, babe, you know, <laughs> brush their hands off. So, you know, there's that too. Like, are we dealing with people that have actually pulled themselves so far out of the milieu of human experience uh, of suffering and love and all that kind of stuff that they're no longer relatable to us and therefore can do whatever they want or just look on our pain and not care? Or are we dealing with people that have been entered into a state where they're really, um, really do understand and have a handle on all the, that, that uh, emotion. So it's, um, it's sort of, it's sort of uh, tricky there too. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Most definitely. Huh. I wanted to say something before I don't get a chance about uh, Alex was talking about the the facts from the NDEs and the and the the love, you know, that sense of of perfect love in a way. <clears throat> and it's uh, it's interesting how Connor, you're you're on. You know what you could say is is one of the one of the paths to enlightenment. If 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 that represents you know that perfect state of out of body or near death experience or certain death experience is like comparative to enlightenment then one of the paths is through love so i i just like how uh you kind of tie that into your practice maybe the only path well no let's say they say there's a few there's quite a few paths <laughs> through <laughs> suffering and pain and all kinds of stuff but i i, I would prefer the yeah, that's because you learn to love mind. not suffering. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's an Obi-Wan Kenobi moment. I mean, that's what they all say, is it is only it is only through love. And it's all those are just different means on land. If you take the yogic kind of thing, you know, Neem Kroli Baba, the yogic tradition, there's all these paths, you know, and there's one guy who can just sit and study. And it's just study books, you know, and that's his path. 
but it's his path to discover that it's all about love, you know. And then there's the other person who's like Mother Teresa, and she just gives, 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 you know, just the loving person. And they experience love by giving love. And it's, you know, so they go through all the different ways. But, you know, to your point, Connor, I mean, I, I think that the meditator, you know, the person who is distancing themselves from that, I don't think that's as much conflict as what you think, because at the end where they reach is this ultimate love. So, you know, they can't, it, it can't help but draw them towards compassion. I mean, it's like, you know, what are they going to do? Go take a hammer to their left thumb, you know, I mean, they realize their thumb is connected to everything else, you know, and that's the ultimate spiritual lesson is that we're all connected. You can't mm-hmm. pick and choose. Yeah. I mean, the the sort of troubling aspect of that, though, is like, is like just people who are religious, they kill other people, right? And that includes Buddhists, you know, um, that includes lots of (laughs) Buddhists murdering Muslims, Buddhists murdering people in Bhutan, all that kind of stuff. It's like, there's a sort of, it it, it reminds me actually of like when you discussed the sort of dark side of NDE with certain people, um, people who went to hell or people who were sort of terrorized by the experience that they have, which is rarer, admittedly, um, but there, or the people who meditate and have dissociative experience. There's a a big study on that. Um, Far be it for me to be someone that says, studies show that, but um, there was a big (laughs) study on it a a while ago. Um, People were having dissociative, paralytic, um, and terrifying experiences from meditating. It's like there's some other quality, and I don't know what it is, because you know, we, we can, we can pray, uh, you know, 20 times a day and it leads us, you know, down one path or the other. I tend to agree with you, Alex. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people who meditate end up in that loving space, but there seems to be something else too going on because some people meditate and they don't get there. And if a sociopath meditated, I mean, I don't have any evidence to back this up, but, you know, they certainly did, you know, uh, experiments with sociopaths and, and, and LSD and trying to sort of free people's minds. If a sociopath meditates, it's not going to lead them to love. It's just going to lead them to more sociopathy. So I, I think it's like... Well, you got to be ready for it, I think, just like uh, with a good psychedelic trip set and setting. Huh. Yeah. It's just as important like, in belief and where you focus it as, as anything else. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe it's our job to improve the context to make love more possible through the experience of meditation. You know, I mean, maybe that's the sort of bodhisattva thing is like, if we, you know, we can leave this world if we want, but you have to be ready. Maybe we want to set the table for others, you know, Mm -hmm. um, so they Mm -hmm. can join us. I think it takes 108 lifetimes. You got it down to 108. <laughs> I think that's what I've put together in 114 episodes. You know, you, you know, you know that 108 is a pretty significant spiritual number, eh? Yeah, because one plus eight is nine, which is a sacred number, and that is three cubed or 33. Pow! <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> So before I let go, I got kind of a fun one. Okay. In the spirit of the week. Making fun of me? Oh, no. Okay. May the fourth be with you. Oh, yeah. Star Wars or Star Trek? 
What? Star You're Wars. Star oh, Trek. Star Wars. Oh, out of Star Wars, probably. Yeah. Really? Probably, yeah. Oh, God. Star Trek and Star Trek Voyager specifically. <laughs> <laughs> I was a Next Generation. That's I like my Next favorite. Generation as well. Yeah. Actually, you know, what's really funny, Kate Mulgrew, who. I'm, I'm glad we're I'm glad we're here now. Kate Mulgrew played Captain Janeway on Star Trek Voyager. I just saw her. She has a memoir out, and this actually t- ties into the things that we're saying because I loved it. So she she is basically Captain Janeway. She she read from her book and talked, and her her like mannerisms, her way of speaking was exactly the same. And some and she's on Orange Is the New Black now, so she has all those fans. And she had a girl raise her hand and ask a question in Q&A and said, you know, what advice do you have to young women entering the workforce? And Kate Mulgrew, she said, I mean, this is exactly, she's like, I've got an answer for you and you're not going to like it. She said, <laughs> you with your pretty hair and your beautiful nails, and I'm sure you have a handsome boyfriend, you're going to die. Just remember that you're going to die. So live it up while you can, baby. <laughs> that's great another quote too (laughs) speaking of quotes i have one request that i want to make of the grammarica show okay and that's uh abolish the quote of the week no you gotta start publishing those you gotta start publishing those in some place where we can get to them on the web because they're I'm supposed curious. to be on the website yeah I'll, I'll, I'll update it fucking... i'll update it no it, there's a but, there's but a there's a tab place, on the website one place where all the uh, where all the ufo quotes are yeah are there? yeah yeah oh it's called the there should be a ufo quote tab i think it's when the new site was put up it, it was i think there, it's right? america.ca slash quotes yeah but yeah i'll uh it oh, all updated. I, just, I apologize. I just wasn't searching the website. No, no, no. That's okay. No, because no, we had people asking about that, and and yeah, I'll, I'll throw them up there more often for sure. Yeah, there's probably like four up there. Do you have a favorite, Alex? Uh, Star Trek or Star Wars? Um, Star Trek, but back when I was just a kid. Yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 I see. I mean, like what I was saying before, I, I just can't get into uh, fantasy stuff. Right, I just, right, I, won't, yeah. I just don't like it. No, do not like it. Do not like any of those movies. Or I, I haven't seen any of the. I, it just doesn't interest me. Star Trek's not facts, fantasy, maybe. man. It's just maybe, the future. It's yeah. a future projected out to us. Wait, so Gene I don't understand. So you just like things that are like super realistic. <laughs> like what? Like you like watching a show where someone's just sitting at a table eating lunch. Or like, <laughs> <laughs> but I was telling these guys last time. I mean, it, I can't get enough of that Gold Rush show. You know, I mean, reality uh, TV, man. I just want to see people then. You know, got it. Building cars or you know, <laughs> digging for gold. Gold Rush Alaska. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, hockey's no. on right now. Are you guys Anaheim fans or what? What is on? Oh, yeah, we're playing against your team right now. Anaheim. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the Ducks. Are, are you playing against? No, Anaheim. Who's the Anaheim team? Yeah, the Ducks. Yeah, they're playing against the Calgary Flames right now in the playoffs. Oh, God, Calgary, Calgary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I, don't, I don't keep track of that until it comes down to the, the Stanley Cup. That's the only time I watch. That sounds about like a, a Californian fan. Absolutely. <laughs> I was a Blackhawks fan, you know. I grew up in Chicago, uh, uh, Makita, and uh, who else do we have? You know, so but that was uh, Gordy Howe. No, Jeremy Ronick. Pat Ronick. I was old, you know. I'm an old guy. 
But uh, yeah, when I was a kid in uh, in Chicago, you know, hockey was big. You'd flood the backyard, you know, make your own little hockey rink. That was a big, big time thing in the winter. But now I got out of there as soon as I could. <laughs> How about you, Red Pill? Any uh, preference? He's Star Wars for sure. Man, I'm a Gnostic, so there's my answer. Ah, I see. I remember watching Star Wars when I was, uh, when did it come out? 76, was it, Red? Do you remember? Yes. I was on a, we were at a drive-in theater in Quebec, and I was on the swing set watching it as a little kid, as a six-year-old. That's like six years before I was born. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I have memories, good old memories from Star Wars. Will you you actually ask me the question again so I can give you my real answer? Star Wars or Star Trek? Buffy. Buffy? <laughs> no. Fuck Buffy. So you probably like you probably like the hundred then. The hundred. I've never seen it. Okay, I think that I think it was the same guy that made Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's a uh, Netflix. I think it's on Netflix. I don't know Netflix. if Netflix made it, but it's called The Hundred and you'd you'd probably like it, Connor. It's pretty okay. interesting philosophically too, and it's about a uh, a nuclear disaster on Earth, and there's some people that end up in a space station, and they put all these space stations together up there, and they wait like 97 years, and they send uh, they send down uh, all the all like... the they send down all the youthful prisoners that are under like 18. They have strict laws up there, and then it's about their whole journey back to Earth. It's pretty cool. Oh, awesome! No, I've never heard of that. I I am a big fan of all his shows. He's if it's Joss Whedon, who um, mm-hmm. I don't really like his movies, I don't really like Avengers, but he did a show called Firefly, and he yeah. also he yeah. also did a show which is my fa- the first season of this one was one of my favorites called Dollhouse, which is this crazy show about these. I, I mean, it's really intensely philosophical about these like um, men and women who sort of sign up. They've had some sort of they've committed some sort of horrible crime or had something horrible happen in their lives. So they sign up with this giant corporation to, for seven years, have their bodies preserved and their minds wiped. And every day they're hired as escorts by really rich and powerful people and programmed with a perfect personality every single time. So they have a different personality every time and they start to sort of like realize that they're in this giant complex. It's very sort of matrixy in a sense, but it has this like sex work like intersection that I kinda dig. Wow, that's a dollhouse? Yeah. It's called okay. Dollhouse. I'll check that out. Yeah. Reminds me of Alex Brogas's uh, Dark City. Of Dark City, yeah. I remember that movie. Gosh, that's it was great. like Kiefer Sutherland, right? Long time ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I was thinking of that movie when you said the world will change on May 6th or May 5th or whatever. And you're like, now it's May 6th and the world hasn't changed. And I was like, maybe it has. And they, we all white. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it has. Totally changed. <laughs> For a lot of people, about 6,000 people that were sitting beside Red Pill Junkie watching the, the slide of the Roswell alien. Well, yeah. I guess that's probably a pretty good uh, note to wrap it up, eh? Do you guys uh, have anything else? Um, it was fun. It's a good conversation. <laughs> yeah. It was really fun. I think this is the first time I've done a podcast where I didn't talk about sex and porn for like an hour, which is <laughs> which is good and not good. You know, like I, it's, it's good because I love being able to talk about other things. Um, not good because I really want to talk with um, – you guys about you guys and I we've talked about this a little bit, but Alex and I haven't talked about that topic yet at all. So maybe maybe someday because often when I listen to Skeptico, I'm like, man, 
Like if you would just see like all the fucking lines of like power and like and and delusion and denial and lies about the accepted beliefs about sex in our culture, like it just lines up with everything else. <laughs> the rhetoric lines up with everything else, and 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 how much it how much it fucks us up. And you know, I mean, there's a lot of crossover with psychedelic stuff too. You know, if you have this sort of war on drugs as war on consciousness, like really the oldest war on consciousness is the war on sex, you know, because that's an altered state of consciousness that we all have access to and we've all been just like shamed and beaten out of our entire lives. So that's another episode. But <laughs> but on the one hand, like I'm saying, I'm actually also really happy that we didn't have to get into any of that because uh, I talk about that. I, I end up talking about that all the time. Yeah, I do want to mention one thing too to sort of expand on on Alex's question to us as Gramerica, that little personal thing is one of the things I do fear and I've I don't know, we haven't talked about it too much here, Darren and I, but it's the fear of of letting that ego get in, in the way and starting to like the show to evolve to the point where uh like you must have had to deal with this, Alex, because your show is like twice as long. Uh, you got twice as many episodes and you've been doing it for almost as long as podcasting has been called podcasting. Uh, did you ever worry about changing in a negative way, you know, becoming kind of egotistical or becoming, I mean, there's a little bit of, you know, you have listeners emailing and stuff like that. I don't want that to affect us negatively. I want to try and keep our, our, uh, what do you like sort of non, <laughs> honesty. non agenda and honesty there. Yeah. Yeah. There. That's all I got to say. Yeah, I mean, I think you guys are doing a great job. I, I, I love the show, you know, but I mean, do you, uh, one question I guess I'd follow up that I, I was trying to ask before, do you guys have a personal direction that you're trying to take the show? I mean, what are your personal goals for, you know, what's going to come out of the show? I don't get, I don't get a sense for that. I mean, I get a sense for it's really, fun it's fun <laughs> yeah it really yeah. is just i mean it kind of started out as an excuse to talk to people that kind of spiraled out of control so at this time we're just sort of we're we're sort of holding on to the steering wheel as opposed to steering it we're just sort of being drug around and learning some things as we go and yeah, I had an odd quote in there before that was kind of like something like it and I can't remember exactly what it was here I'm quoting myself how bad is that uh, it, it's something like a twofold path between like personal growth and an opportunity for people to come along. Like, so I, I kind of want to grow through this whole thing personally. And that's kind of why we, we end up doing a lot of like spiritual stuff too and healing and all that. Cause that's kind of where, where some of my interests are. So yeah, it's a lot of, it's about, about that. And then all of a sudden when you have an audience, you start to feel sort of a responsibility to them too, right? They're kind of along for the ride and they decide they want to hear these people or they want to talk about this. And I think you can kind of take a little nugget away from every little show yeah. and, and it all kind of fits into the puzzle somewhere, somewhere, yeah, no. somewhere in the back episodes of Gramerica is the meaning of life. Yeah. And like, like Connor said, it all seems to boil, or he mentioned the war on consciousness and we've kind of realized lately that everything's kind of tied together and it's all about the war on con consciousness. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I really want to thank you guys for, uh, actually being able to have a conversation this long with so much, so little interruptions, you know, we had to respect everybody, uh, 
just let it let people talk and it's just uh it's a great thing to be able to do that everybody got their points across and yeah it's very good thank you well i was yeah. a seething cauldron of rage every time <laughs> we spoke so it really took a lot of respect <laughs> on my part uh, <laughs> keep up that love red is that is that good anything for you well uh about my personal directive if i have one i think that my, my personal goal is growth you know uh, uh, growing by learning more you know getting more involved and i'm also thinking with what you just said uh, uh, graham and i think that when i shine the most is or what i get i excited the most is when i whenever i leave a comment in some website you know something that i find interesting and i add something to the discussion, contribute and say, you know, what you just said here reminded me of this other thing that I found in this other site, you know, and connecting those two mm. uh, sites. And maybe that will be helpful for someone in their own personal path, you know, the, the, that bit of uh, uh, info that I just managed to contribute. And so what I feel is that when I help people grow is when I grow, you know, trying to, to, to get it, getting back to, to what Connor said, you know, about love. Maybe, maybe this is what we're, we all are doing it, you know, this, this, uh, we chose podcasting and blogging as our, as our path to enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> Very well I think said. That's really true. Yeah. I, I think that's spot on. It's a rocky road. <laughs> <laughs> Right on, guys. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, go Flames, go over your little ducks. Yeah, duck hunting. <laughs> <laughs> we'll burn, the, we'll burn those ducks. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going there on the hockey. Team. All right. Okay, thanks a lot, guys. Hey, thank, thank you. you so much. Really, it's been an honor. And I just, like, uh, you guys are all, like, um, you guys are all people that I really greatly admire. So I really appreciate being here. Seriously. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys. Hey, oh, yeah. guys. Are you guys cool with me putting out, uh, maybe a condensed version of this on the Skeptico feed? Oh yeah, man. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And then Skeptico people can listen and Connor, you, we're going to talk after this, but we got to get you on. We've got to get you to guest host. We'll pull awesome. you into awesome. pot. If, if we have to be the catalyst that pulls you into <laughs> podcasting. <laughs> exactly. Right on. Yeah. Kick and scream the whole way. Yeah. <laughs> right on. All right, guys. Okay, guys. Thanks a bunch. Have a good night. And that was our. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> and that was our chat with. Uh, decided to switch it up on you. I was just about to copy exactly what you said. <laughs>
Uh, that was Connor Habib, Red Bull Junkie, and Alex Akarison, and what a great chat that was. That made me feel like, uh, like, really happy and proud to be doing this podcast. Like, just be able to have conversations. Like, I don't want to get too sappy, but sappy's like, what you do, bro. Like, no, really, like that's that that's why it was. Good. It's cool to talk, be able to talk to people about all kinds of shit like that. Yeah, pretty Where, cool to get who? called a guru by Alex Akaris too. Like Obi-Wan, you mean? Obi-Wan, yeah. Obi-Wan's not a guru. You think he's a guru? guru. Oh, I'm yeah. not a guru by any means. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you do save the good stuff sometimes. Few and far between, buddy. Yeah, so we want to thank all those guys for coming on, and hopefully we can do it again sometime. Hopefully Connor will have his own podcast. He's yeah, that's the thing. I wish that. you could just do it every week. It's like we could have a whole other show with a bunch of different people. Like, yeah. I could just pod, we could just be doing podcasts with different people all day long and never run out of things to talk about. True that. 115 episodes later. Yeah. And I know it's, it is, it's crazy. Eh? It seems like there's more to talk about now after 115 episodes. I think it's because your fucking consciousness kind of expands or your knowledge base or you learn about some other shit that you never even heard about before and you get connections through these people and those people and they introduce you to people you never heard about before it seems like there's more people now than there was when we started for sure like what do we have 100 people on the list when we started not even and now there's probably yeah a thousand no we're good for 20 years of podcasts well there's stuff we haven't even talked about that we talked about talking about at the beginning like ghosts for example like i thought that would be one that we would have addressed a few times and we really we kind of did the exorcism one but it took us 100 episodes to talk about bigfoot yeah i know sasquatch sasquatch yep. with a k no it wasn't 100 episodes what i think was we it? did it the was bigfoot 50. one way back least, no it was no, a couple no, years in yeah 90 like probably oh, no, i guess 90. we're not even a couple years in yet oh when is the second year anniversary end of the month is it end of may and the mail, yeah, that's something we haven't talked about in a while. It's too bad nobody listens to the outro. We oh. should have mentioned that in the intro. Yeah, Are we but... in an outro now? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. What did you want to talk about? The two-year anniversary? Yeah, I think it's, well, I think our first episode, we actually ended up releasing it a week earlier. May like 24th May 23rd or, or May 24th, but we just call it June 1st. Okay. It's easier. That's what we did last year. We did our one year on June 1st, but I don't think we're doing anything this year. Nah. Just like men celebrating their birthdays, it's hardly celebrated, right? Yeah, exactly. It's more of the, I think the episode markers are more the thing now. Like, we'll do another special at 200, right? If Grammerica was a woman and her anniversary landed on a Wednesday, we'd celebrate for two weekends, one on each side of it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Just kidding. Just like birthdays? Yeah, it'd be nice. Uh... Well, that's what I meant, actually, it was birthdays. Two years already, eh? Coming up on two years. We're only three weeks away from two years. Yeah, that's crazy. We'll have, a, we'll have 117 episodes out by then? 117 or 118 episodes. Anyways, I don't want to talk about us. Yeah, no. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week.
my soul It's the dark side of my memories That got me drinking this Hennessy What happened to our chemistry? Why did you leave? How could this be? Love has made me ever crazy But lately, baby, you've been acting strange And your shoulder words and it's driving me insane Can't you see that I'm trying to change? I want to be the man that you need Live a life with just you and me Take my hand so that we can flee Forever love and eternity yeah.